Welcome to the Dissect Podcast. I'm Michael Blevins. I'm here with Mark Twite and his good friend, Kristen Ulmer. Um, today, because I think it needs um, a little bit more introduction, Kristen joined us with Stephen Kotler the other day, and I'm not sure which episode will come out first, so we'll treat this like it's on its own and first. I'll treat you with priority over Stephen. Wow. Just take that as a compliment. That's good oh, company. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the winner. I'm exactly. number one. Exactly. <laughs> he, uh, he did promise maybe to speak with us again. Oh, yeah. That'll happen. Yeah. Oh, he loves you guys. I'm pretty sure. He says it's the most fun he's had with a podcast in years. Nice. <laughs> so can, someone, can one have fun on a podcast? Is I did, you know, as long as we don't get locked in here again. Uh, <laughs> we'll explain that story later. Uh Kristen, you are the uh, not only the author of a book called The Art of Fear, um, but you are also a lifelong extreme athlete. Well, lifelong, I don't know about that. I you, I spent about twenty years. Do you still kiteboard? Oh yeah. I okay, still so don't make excuses. You're still an extreme athlete. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> because that's like the craziest. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. want to pretend I, that it's all in my past, but you no, know, I still, for old times' sake, just go for. It. It's like I used to be a heroin addict, mm. and just every once in a while, I'm just in the mood for heroin. You do a little bit of. Uh, you just do a little bit of uh, Percocet. Right. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> On the weekends, I, I do perks. <laughs> I, I loved what you said earlier. It was just like I just want to get worse and worse at skiing as I age and still do it or oh, something nice. like that. Yeah. Well, I was uh, considered t- the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world for 12 <laughs> years. And I have goals in skiing now still to this day, but my goals are to get worse and worse at skiing every year and somehow find a way to be okay with that. Mm. Okay. Comfortable with a, with declining performance. Yes. Yeah. And perhaps interest but yeah well certainly interest but um i still have people say to me oh let's see if you still got it and i'm like fuck you like i don't what are you trying to dredge up my old big skier ego and like see if my skier ego is still like no i don't still got it that's long gone i'm a different person now i like myself much better (laughs) okay so to juxtapose that against a conversation that would have had with your husband Kirk about why he doesn't <laughs> ski with you is because he's not about to you know if I can quote this it might be verbatim I don't jump out of fucking helicopters at this age and she does is how he would have put it because you're still doing some heli skiing right right well what he's referring <laughs> to I, I think uh, Iceland because you're going to well yeah but Iceland I don't think is all that dangerous but I go heli skiing in Alaska every year and two years ago we we're up there there's 45 skiers and by the end of the second day 12 of them were out with devastating injuries oh so I mean statistically what is that and we still had five days to go and uh and i went to bed i'm like oh my god like the conditions were kind of treacherous and um you know the the rooms were this old fishing lodge and the the walls were thin and you could hear people screaming throughout the night like everybody was trying to figure out whether they were going to go skiing the next day and i wake up and the, the only way i could go to sleep is if i convince myself like i'm not gonna go and i wake up in the morning and i call kirk i'm like well 
You know, they're thinking of dumbing it down, taking us to less steep stuff. Or I could go out with the professional athletes, you know, who are filming a movie and kind of be their tag along and ski 55 degree slopes and kind of ramp it up. And he's like, act your age. You know, you're 49 <laughs> years old. Like, act your age. I'm like, fuck you. And I it, hung up the phone. I, I and was I, just going to say, that's like <laughs> the sure way to to get right. you to go with the pros. Right, so I went with the pros and you know, I risked my life. I hadn't, I haven't risked my life on skis in 10 years. So next thing you know, I'm risking my life out there. After watching all my friends get hurt, I had the best ski day of the last 10 years. It was amazing. Nice. Yeah. So we call that statistically thinning the herd is what we <laughs> I just drop so off was like it fries. Um, were all of those injuries specifically due to conditions or were some of those people um, a, a little did they believe a little bit too strongly in their ability it's due to condition it was due to conditions but there's okay. something really strange that happens in Alaska heli skiing like people feel like they've trained their whole lives to go up there and ski these 55 degree slopes and they they kind of convince themselves that what they need to do and this is a good segue into fear is just kind of turn off that survival mechanism and just co kind of go dumb and just give her like point it straight down and just hopefully this will work out and it just it doesn't work so many people get injured up in alaska i i would say on an average two or three people a day mm -hmm. out of a very small group get injured but you know 12 in two days was what's excessive. the most common like knee yeah sure okay. Neat. ACL stuff. Well, one one of the guys that week that I was skiing with, and I saw him. He he. Uh, this is a really strange ski injury, but he, um, he compressed his testicle so bad mm. that they wanted to life flight him to Anchorage to have it amputated. Oh, so that was one of the injuries in my group, and so I'm the only one that saw that happen. Testicular torsion. Yeah. Is that what they call that? Yeah. Oh, fuck that. And you wow. think, how could that possibly be a ski I, injury? I would said, I'm yeah. just like Lance Armstrong. Rock on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe. So, All right. Anyway, enough about that. <laughs> so I have, and you, you mentioned the segue, so I, I will hop on it at, at, at uh, your beck. And you wrote a book on fear, but I have a bone to pick with you about this oh, that I mentioned God. before. Um, you, in, in I, w I won't cover this too much because I want people to go go read it because it's a fairly entertaining read. Like it's very easy to read. It's very fun. There's lots of adventure. There's lots of segue. You're not just psychoanalyzing people. You give a lot of good advice based on practical experience, which I think is is different than what most psych books are or you know what that category falls into, self-help maybe. Maybe you want to shoot yourself when I say that because you kind of adamantly point that out in the book. Um, but what you're essentially saying is that Star Wars was wrong about fear. Yes. Well, Star Wars wasn't wrong about fear. They were wrong about the force. You know, may the force be with you. It suggests that the force is going to go and look for you and find you. And it doesn't work that way. The saying should have been, may you be with the force because you got to go find it. Ooh. And I, I consider force and flow the same thing. It's like okay. the river. The river's not going to jump out to find you. You got to go <laughs> find the river and you got to jump in it. You got to go find that kind of higher altered state. Um, it's not natural. So I have your new Instagram handle. What? Darth Ulmer. 
is the new. Well, let me write that down. Darth, Darth Ulmer I'm, is your new. I got to buy the domain name. Oh, Where's my yes, book? that's God where we're going to point it towards your book. It'll be yeah. DarthUlmer.com. Yeah. Com. yeah. Um, Actually, I'm not going to buy that one because because I'm sure I'm holding out for a better one. Oh, okay. To come up. Didn't, we'll take a note on DarthUlmer.com. So yeah. hold on. Let me just say something about flow and mm-hmm. the force sure. and fear and. Um, so if you're in flow with fear, you're in flow with your life. And so my book is not just about fear, but it's also about just being in flow with your life or kind of becoming one with your life. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I reference that in my book. So you, and you have, oh, I, and before you reference the Star Wars thing, I was thinking about it beforehand because we have this thing on being um, uh, I don't, indifferent towards things, allows you to see them a little bit, like being unbiased about it. Being unbiased in any given category allows you to approach the category with an open mind. Therefore, you can choose the most correct path. And I think you say something very similar with with fear. Um, You associate uh, emotions on being, let's just say it's a a dichotomy. Like there's good emotions and bad emotions. So you say, you know, happiness and, and love and gratitude, all those are the positive ones. And everybody's supposed to embrace those. And then the bad ones, the fear, the anger, the hate, all this stuff, we, we're supposed to get rid of that. We're not supposed to ever feel that. And if we do, we're bad citizens or we're bad people. And it comes back to a conversation that we have all the time about this notion of original sin. And almost it, it leaves a taste in almost every subject that we get to. And emotions are no different. And you make a really strong argument for... Um, not getting rid of them, not repressing them, not masking them, not it, not um, not portraying yourself as somebody who does not feel them. Um, that that was the first very useful, um, honest, and quite uh, frankly frightening aspect about that because most people they feel one of these things. Like I fear, I feel fear frequently. Um, I don't think I'm necessarily um, repressing it in most cases, but I do repress other things like anger and hate and I, i've learned to in the last couple of years really accept them as powerful tools but is that relationship preservation um <laughs> uh, technique right there like to suppress certain things it could be societal whatever like so the other day um i dropped a cutting board on my toe it was my fault totally my fault i was getting one cutting board out and the other one came out and it dropped directly at my toe and uh, the frustration of being dumb enough to do that made me angry. So as opposed to bogging that back down, I just broke the fucking cutting board and then threw it in the trash. And normal people that would look on and be like, oh, he has an anger problem. It's like, mm. Not as now. Like a, I resolved yeah, it. Well, that's what I would say. I, was like, <laughs> I did momentarily and then I... I, I had uh, a problem with that cutting board and my own stupidity and I addressed both in one swift kick, which is fine. Um, I still have to linger or limp about because the cutting board won still. Like I didn't win anything, but I deal with things. I feel like now I can deal with things at a little bit better rate if I just give in, and this was before your book, like if I just give that emotion a little bit of clarity, give that give that thing that everybody says it's negative, give it a little bit of like vocal uh, amplitude of sorts, if that makes sense. All right, so a couple things. Mm-hmm. First of all, did you feel better after you broke the cutting board? Oh, way better. <laughs> a thousand times better. Now, if uh, if your wife had you know, caused you harm, mm-hmm. you wouldn't feel better if you broke your wife, though. So um, here, here's the thing about emotions. What kind of harm? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a different conversation. <laughs> um, the thing about emotions, like uh, emotions are like the dog, right? Mm-hmm. 
they're not the dog's not good the dog's not bad it's just if the dog behaves in a way that you don't want it to then it's considered a bad dog the dog is just a dog the dog's just doing its dog thing right but it's the owner's responsibility the dog's behavior is the owner's responsibility. Right, that's true. And if fear is misbehaving, if anger is misbehaving, that's your responsibility. Yes. Like you, you've been maybe beating this dog called fear, this dog called anger. You've been ignoring it, um, locking it in the basement, keeping it in a cage, giving it no food, no water. You know, it's going to act out in a way that you don't like. Um, so <clears throat> I'll also give you my favorite analogy that's in the book. And it kind of really illustrates your first part of what you're talking about. So imagine that you're a parent to 10,000 children. Mm. And this is really, you know, I'm, I'm studying, I study Zen, I mm. teach Zen. And there's two different ways to live your life. And the first way that I'm going to outline is what I think people see as Zen, but it's actually not Zen. It's kind of more like modern Christianity or Mormonism, you know, here we are in Utah, or maybe a new age movement, I don't know. But so here's the analogy. So you're a parent to 10,000 children, and half your children you've named happiness, love, joy, gratitude, forgiveness. The other half of your children you've named fear, anger, sadness, misery, ugliness, stupidity. Despite your best intention, would you be able to treat all your children the same way? Seems like the half of the children are going to start a fucking black metal band and the other half are going to join a cult called the Moonies. <laughs> right. I, I have a pencil that I could sell you. <laughs> and uh, and half the children, the first pile of children, they're going to all move to Marin County or Ojai. And, they're already there. Right? Thank they're God. singing Kumbaya, <laughs> oh right? right? Drum circle. All right. So what we tend to do, and this is the first way to live your life, is we tend to nurture and love and show off to the mm. world these wonderful children. And what do we do with these other children? Well, we put duct tape over their mouths, plastic bag over their head. We lock them in the basement. We throw away the key. And oh, here we are on the surface, like nurturing and well, loving and showing off to the world. Put them how, to work in a salt mine. I mean, right. like make them, make them like at least contribute to my personal economy. <laughs> I mean, for fucks. I mean, like, if, and, and, and. I read this whole thing about like work makes you happy, work makes you free, and so if they just work long enough, they'll they'll join, they'll rename themselves and join the other kids. We're gonna reestablish child labor laws based on Mark's discovery just now. Okay, I'm not sure what I, to do with that. I see. <laughs> it gave exactly. I don't know where the Zen is in that, but uh, it's. Um, <clears throat> It, it, <laughs> it's it's the deeper part of Zen, which they call sunyata, which translates to nothing. <laughs> we just described nothing. Yeah. Okay. And and yeah, as in not a thing. <laughs> not a thing. So let's just but, sit in nothingness for, no, let's not sit in nothingness. Let's continue with the analogy, yes. right? Yes, please. So we nurture and love and show off to the world these children over here. And the question is, is it Zen to be angry? Is it Zen to be afraid? Here's here's where I think what you're up against, um, because what you're talking about. So you, um, there are very few empirically identified emotional qualities. We tend to confabulate things beyond pleasure and actual fear, which are, are um, directly tr- um, identified by releases of hormones. So like pleasure, you have dopamine. Um, cortisol, you have fear, something like this. Everything else, there, there's no such thing as a uh, happiness 
uh, in the brain, as in we can't identify it either. And that, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That just means right as of this time, we don't have any way to empirically say, here is happiness in the brain. It's always tied to pleasure, right? So we have a couple qualities. What I'm saying, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying that you describe things that aren't there. What I'm saying is that you're up against basically 200 years of theory uh, and materialism that's described as logical behavioralism. And this is what most psychology and most um, states of human emotion are described as are just things that we can identify chemically, hormonally, or environmentally. Because as a you know materialist, if it doesn't come down to atoms, we can't identify it, therefore it doesn't exist. And I think what you're touching on is the beginning of something else that, you know, it's not woo-woo necessarily, but it's concerning subjects that can't be identified or, or, or states that can't be logically identified. There's nothing wrong with that, but the argument that people will give you is like the psychobabble that you kind of mentioned in your book, which is like people always want to identify things like we'll fix it with this medication or fix it with this chemical or fix it with this thing. And what you're stating, and, and this has a very Zen feel to it, is um, we have to kind of jump that ship of empirical identification or logical behavioralism, and we have to actually uh, try to discover things before we know that they exist. Does that does that make sense? Is that kind of a fair assessment of what you're up against or, or, or the, the wall that you're trying to get people to jump over with you? It is what I'm up against mm -hmm. because right now our brains are so developed and we're looking to science, to our ability to understand things analytically to mm -hmm. solve pretty much all problems. It's like we've built a shrine to our ability to understand things, think about things, reason about things. Um, and we worship it like a god. And things that can't be explained scientifically are seen as having no merit. Um, and we're trying to intellectually understand something as old and wise and established as emotions. And we're actually taught to deal with our emotions intellectually as a reason, uh, or as a result. And right now I see emotional intelligence in our society is our ability to intellectually understand our emotions or just understand them. You know, if you don't consider yourself an intellect, right? Just understand why did I feel that way? Why did I break that cutting board? Um, why am I so uh, afraid right now? And control them and then control the emotions. And we've gotten to the point where we're trying so hard to control emotions, like even an emotion like joy you know, we see uh, Tom Cruise jump for joy onto the couch on, I think it was Oprah, and we think he's mentally unstable. And so it's not just fear, anger, or sadness. Like we, we cry, we apologize for it. Um, we hide the fact that we're afraid. Um, anger, you know, we don't do that. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're seen as um, victorious if you walk away from an angry situation without expressing your anger. And we're all just in our heads about our emotions. And so we've completely lost our ability to feel them. And so that's what I'm up against. You know, I, I say almost immediately in the first chapter, like my book is not filled with some um, super heady, science-y, psychobabble, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's not what I'm all about. I'm just all about getting people to use a different form of intelligence to deal with their emotions than their intellect um, and, uh, you know, just because you know scientifically what happens, you know, on a computer screen, like maybe the amygdala turns purple and mm. gets heightened, you know, um, when fear shows up, is that going to make you feel less fear when you're about to give a speech? 
No, it's it's interesting information, but it's essentially useless. I, I would say it's not even interesting. Yeah. Like, okay. I mean that, and and this was a a, a thing that um, <clears throat> for me that sort of came up with a, reading through some of Stephen's stuff. Um, it's like, wow. Okay, so we have identified the chemical composition in the brain of a state of flow. Who cares? Like. Thank totally great. Does, yeah. does that make me feel it more? It, does like, it make it, me feel it more? Does it, does it does it does it allow me to um to to enter into that state more easily, or to extend it, or to uh, you know turn it on and turn it off? Just because I know, you know what the chemical like w- w- what happens neurochemically, I guess in in you know in inside, and um. And I was just somehow thinking at, at some point, like, wow, this did not need to be written. Well, but, you know, I love their work. And, and some of this stuff is really interesting. Mm. Like to realize that the neurochemistry of feeling excitement and the neurochemistry of feeling fear are identical. That's interesting information. Mm. We can work with yes. that. That's yeah, I could excuses the ropes right. and chains. That the I've the other <laughs> the other piece of information that I just heard um, from science, and I don't know the study, but if you try to, because right now, like with PTSD soldiers, mm. you know, options are meditation or MDMA. Like, let's take meditation for mm. example, and uh, these soldiers are looking to meditate in order to feel better. Well, it takes scientifically four minutes of meditation to calm down your anxiety if you're trying to just kind of replace it with calm and take deep breaths and um, kind of concentrate on the parts of your body that feel joy or love or gratitude. But if you actually turn towards the fear and you just allow yourself to feel it rather than try to replace it with something else, it takes four seconds to calm it down. That's also useful, useful information. And actually, I just heard that the other day and it's like kind of, scientifically proves the premise of my book like we have got to stop repressing fear or trying to replace it with gratitude or love or joy as a way to feel less anxiety in our lives if you actually turn towards it and give it your respect and consideration and just learn how to feel it rather than think about it it goes away in four seconds it's crazy this is something that i mentioned in passing and and i can't remember what episode it is on but i I mentioned something as in uh endurance athletes having uh, a better relationship with their brain and understanding how it works better than most neuroscientists, even though they couldn't identify what actions are controlled by a prefrontal cortex or yada, 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 they do understand situationally how their brain reacts best because they're actually on the ground using it. And I think that's essentially the, the, what I found very useful of your book wasn't that, you know, an fMRI discovered that this, you know, hippocampus lights up and this does that. And therefore, we don't know how to tell you to practice that. And the same thing is useful when we put people in situations that, um, you know, some of the things that we work on most frequently are getting people to not quit, <laughs> right? Or, or understanding the relationship with failure as opposed to quitting because one gets blocked by the other. We, we essentially say that um, there's very few times that failure is actually happening. It's usually a version of, cognitively quitting and then subconsciously hiding the fact that you did that because then it hurts our ego and it hurts all this identity problems. So most of the stuff that we identify or we, we try to train people or condition them to get better at is not quitting. Um, but identifying any of the brain regions that are lighting up when you quit does not help you actually change that part about you. Situationally and experientially, 
um, feeling them, an emotional you know attachment to what happens when it goes bad, and a positive feedback, feeling what it happens when it goes good, are almost the only ways humans can learn. Like most animals, we're conditioned by feeling things, not conditioned by just this knowledge of it. And I think it's uh, an impossibility, but a, a goal of ours to um, spread the word, I guess you could say. That sounds very like missionary. I, yeah. Um, teach the good people of Africa the, the benefits of our Messiah called quitting. Um, I, I think <laughs> if I could go on a, anyway, a rant, uh, the, the idea behind getting you to feel something can then translate into conditioning that, that process. And that's what, that's how we condition dogs. Like the best trained dogs are just Pavlovian in nature. They are, this feels good. This feels bad. And this binary back and forth, bouncing them into a direction that eventually, um, they don't need to feel the bad because they don't do any of the bad stuff anymore. And that, that's what I think we try to condition based off of emotion as opposed to intellect. But we're in a society that respects intellect. And I do, like, this is hard for me to say because most of what I do is thinking, which is fucking ridiculous, because thinking doesn't change much unless there's a emotional equality attached to it. And I think that's something that you did really well, not only based on the fact that you didn't uh, jargon us with like bullshit and the brain, um, but also your experiences were probably the most fascinating part that I was reading about it. And uh, uh, what Mark would actually, before I read that, Mark introduced me uh, to you by way of explaining some of the crazy shit that you've done in your life. And your book does an excellent job of highlighting that. And I think, it, is there is there like is this the most powerful way to do it? You've had this experience. You're probably the only person that could talk about it in this realm because you're still alive. And very few people that have done what you do are alive to talk about not only what they did, how they did it, but also what they would have corrected when they came out the other side. Sorry, there's a really long way to get to that question. but Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well... You know, I'm a fear and anxiety specialist, and there's there's doctors, <laughs> and there's and you have been <laughs> since I met you. Yes, <laughs> I didn't realize it back then. Um, and but now you're just using it for good now, and not for hedonistic e pleasure. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say evil, evil because yes. I, because I wanted to put the language of sin on it somehow. But um. <laughs> you know, the bottom line is, who do you want to take advice about fear from? Uh, you know, somebody that studied it in college, <laughs> or somebody that's had thirty plus years of real world practical in the dirt experience of dealing with a tremendous amount of fear, making life or death decisions on a regular basis, who's then kind of studied it, you know, from an emotional place instead of an intellectual or scientific place. Um, like I know in super practical terms, what works, what does not work. And I've also found a way to transmit that to people through what I teach, how I write, when I facilitate people. Um, and just kind of taking us kind of all the way on the discussion about the head stuff, the science stuff, I see that there are, and I know there's uh, other people that write about this, four different types of intelligence that we have. There's the mental intelligence that we've talked about, the cognitive, you know, Michael, you obviously have taken that basket to the top of the mountain, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, that is your life's mission, to become as intellectual uh, 
as you possibly can be. And our modern school system also seeks to help nurture that form of intelligence. But then we also have physical intelligence. And we look at the guy that we call meathead, you know, um, that's maybe not that bright. Two plus two equals I don't know what, right? But he's brilliant at football. Two plus two is equal to protein powder. Okay, thank you. (laughs) So, but they they may have a brilliant physical intelligence, but we don't call them intelligent. Whenever we say, oh, that guy's really smart or that guy's really intelligent, we're always referring to their ability to kind of understand things in a way that like you talk, you understand things. But that meathead athlete has a form of intelligence. Like, do you know that a woman can give birth to a baby uh, when she's brain dead? Like she can yeah. build a baby, give birth. Now, you know, the thought of how she got pregnant in the first place when she's brain dead, I, I'm not going to go there. But let's just, right? Like, it's let's just. not called the little death for nothing. <laughs> I was going to say something about Kappa Delta Phi or something is probably a. Sorry, it was a. <laughs> All right. We're, we're really disintegrating fast. Let me bring us back on point. So, like, your heart pumps blood without thought and you're kind of what is it kidneys secrete bile am i getting that right without thought like there's just incredible intelligence in the body and we train as athletes and our body just like we now we just know how to walk and and talk and and um carry ourselves and there's an innate physical intelligence that also gets nurtured you know we have gym classes in high school and, and elementary school and yes okay we nurture a little bit of physical intelligence um, but then there's emotional intelligence and then there's also spiritual intelligence and spiritual intelligence is no longer religion like there's a big separation from that now spiritual intelligence is just having an experience of something bigger than your own ego like the force that we were talking about or having an experience of flow um, like you can have people that are religious but not spiritual right you can have people that are spiritual but not religious so there's also spiritual intelligence and then there's emotional intelligence and I'll, I'll say more about that in a little bit but what i've learned is that spiritual physical and emotional intelligence are all basically the same thing and so that's where i come in like i'm helping people nurture first of all access to begin with, and then nurture and also take to the top of the mountain these other forms of intelligence. And the reason why they're all kind of interconnected, like the emotions are uh, sensations in the body, you know, physical intelligence. If you're willing to feel them, you know, being in the body is the bridge that you cross to get into the spiritual. You know, there's a reason why sports take people into the zone and little else does or take people into that heightened states of awareness, you know, because you're getting into your body. So they're all connected. And that's what I seek to do with my clients is get them to nurture these other forms of intelligence that they maybe didn't even know existed. That you 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 touched on something really interesting that that um, that I think about quite often is is the fact that we haven't always had the thinking man like we haven't always had these uh, nature doesn't allow like true nature true wildness and true survival which is uh, uh, you know our history for let's say two hundred thousand years and only in the last ten thousand have we really started to develop efficiencies where we can let go of the true nature of uh, animalism or whatever you want to call it. Um, the, the thinking man comes because we, and maybe, maybe all four, um, what you describe as different, uh, realms of intelligence, maybe those are only able to separate when, when we're given the leeway of developing them separately. So in the, like when we say Western culture developed in with the Greeks, 
it mostly developed because of the helpfulness of slavery. Like that, that was what allowed for the thinking man to, to have the time to think is because a culture built on most of the free labor, the, the physical, um, the physical toll and the physical energy was subset or, or subcontracted to a demographic of people that allowed uh, a different demographic of people to do more thinking. So they're, they're developing different intelligence this way. And you could argue the same thing, um, spiritually, uh, spiritually in, in Eastern societies, because a similar thing, slavery or, you know, different forms of an in, endowment allowed for spiritual access through practices of Tao and Zen and different forms of Buddhism and even getting into, you know, et cetera, et cetera, for the spiritual intelligence. So uh, when we're talking about these things, most of the time we're talking about like when you develop an efficiency, it's usually at the cost of something else. And I think very few people think that, but our culture hasn't been geared to kind of like pick one. And when we meet, you know, a physically intelligent person, like you described, that's fairly intellectually dumb. Um, I don't necessarily think it's because he's not physically intelligent, um, or sorry, physically intelligent because of lack of intellect necessarily. It's just where all the energy is going. And you only, it's finite with us. We only have so much to spend. And it's true. If you go one realm, like I go to MIT and I develop this and that's my whatever, I'm the intellect person. I'm probably physically um, handicapped of some sort. Like I don't have good motor skills. I haven't fine tuned that. So when we're when we're generally discussing this, what becomes phenomenal is a sitting in a room where when people develop more than one or two of these, and I think that's the highlight of what you can start to teach people. From what I'm guessing that you're doing with people, you're highlighting the fact that you do not have to be physically regressive in order to be emotionally expressive, and you don't have to be intellectually retarded in order to um, also have a higher spiritual content. Does that kind of gather what your mission statement would be with, with this process? Like you, you essentially took extreme sports and found a sp- like, uh, <laughs> I can joke about the mundaneness of extreme sports. Like, cool. You did a trick on a half pipe, bro, but you had the intellect to translate what was going on at an emotional level and now you're sharing that with people and that's what i would express why what mark has done as well he's done these these feats that most people can't even comprehend physically in the mountains um conquering you know an age-old thing just conquering a peak of sorts um which you probably wouldn't uh, knowing the humbleness at which most people do these things it's not conquering at all it's surviving the peak is more or less but then when you come down the intellect is able to translate that into something that people can experience emotionally or you use emotion and intellect to translate that and i think you've done something very similar and that that's what fascinates me about your book is that uh and about mark's career is that not only do you have this strange awareness of physicality and adventure but you're also able to like transfer that onto other people who don't i don't have access to that i'm not ever going to take a 70 foot gap backwards or whatever the hell you did and i'm never going to go to the himalayas with ice tools that's something i can't do but i can really appreciate the emotional qualities that that taught you and hopefully i can gain or gleam some sort of uh, experience from that well what makes a special person versus a normal person? Like this person's normal, this person's special. And for me, it seems to be that you've figured out what your innate gifts are 
and then you've nurtured and cultivated them. Like there's kind of four layers. Like you could be born completely incompetent at something and you can get better at it. Like you know? Ad Adobe InDesign? Is that <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're facing right now is our incompetence towards software like development. Third trimester <laughs> incompetence. <laughs> um, and we're starting to see this in autism too. It's mm. like, yes, maybe they can't hang in math class, mm. but there, there's some gift somewhere that needs to be found out and nurtured. And so there's incompetent, and somebody could be born incompetent physically, like not a chance in hell at being an athlete, or not a chance in hell at being a scientist, right? But you can work really, really hard and become competent at it, mm. and then you can work really hard even still and become excellent at it. But then there's genius, which is the top level, and you're either born with that or you're not born with that. And so like the football player, you know, maybe he's incompetent at school stuff, you know, intellectual stuff, like he's never gonna be you, but he was born a genius football player. Now, he doesn't come out of the womb, you know, great at that, you have to actually nurture it, you actually, like I said, have to take that basket to the top of the mountain. But what the difference is between a special person and a normal person is, is a special person has figured out what their genius is, mm. and they've taken it as far as they can take it. That's what makes a special person. And so you look at like an extreme athlete, for example, you know, there's a, a bunch of things that, you know, are aligning, like all the stars are aligning, aligning you know, maybe the right um, physical makeup, you know, like a swimmer, long arms, you know, big, broad upper body. Um, I used to joke with Mark, you know, because he has such a big, broad chest. He's built for a climber, to be a climber, but his legs are so skinny, you know, that he wouldn't have made a good skier. Um, so, like, you want to have a bubble butt if you're going to be a soccer player? Like, you have to have the right physical... Um, raw material. Raw material, thank you. And so, um, but when it comes to, like, emotional intelligence, like, there's a certain kind of genius that you can be born with that. Some people are born just absolutely incompetent with their emotions, just organically, and then they're also taught repression from society and their parents, and they're gonna have a really hard time feeling their emotions. They have a hard time even feeling hot or cold or the grass on their feet. Like, you know, that's, that could be something that they're really incompetent at, but they, that doesn't mean that they can't become competent at it or even excellent at feeling their emotions. So, um, I feel like I, I had some sort of innate genius at my ability to feel my emotions or just feel my feelings, and that really helped me out in the mountains. Um, but just back to the four different types of intelligence. But before you go back to that, do, do, you think, um, do you think because you were already on, let's say, a sub, like a very uh, selective subculture that you were able to feel differently? As in, you're in a group that is outside the norm, right? So you don't work at a cubicle job where your emotions come up and you have the same, like that you're able to express them normally. You're on top of a mountain deciding to do something, you know, physically um, risking, mortality is on the line basically. And your, your emotional hindsight now is that, oh, I was, but do you think it's environmental at that point? Like you put yourself in a situation where you become more emotionally intelligent. Here's what it feels like to be a professional athlete that does super dangerous, sketchy outdoor experiences, especially something like skiing where it's really fast and furious. It feels like radical self-expression. And the emotional component in that is um, whatever I'm feeling, I express in a radical way, you know, all the way. 
And we get that emotions are really important in the artistic world, like in singing or dance or sculpture, painting. Like the uh, Russian ballet masters say that the emotions are more important than technique, you know, and thus we have the movie Black Swan. Um, we look at singing competitions like The Voice or uh, American Idol. Is that right? And uh, Wrong people to ask. <laughs> right. And uh, the judges say that the emotions are more important than pitch. You know, Neil Young, for example. He's totally out of pitch, but we love him. Why? Because there's so much emotion in his singing. And so we get that in the kind of artistic world. We don't realize it's the same thing with sports. Like, I could be a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, but if I don't have any fuel, if I don't have any gas in my tank, I'm not gonna go anywhere with my gifts or talents. Like that emotional, radical self-expression that comes out when I'm out on the mountain is as important as how strong my quads are. That's a, <laughs> that, that you might've summed up questions that I've had about why um, I, I tend to be not a particularly gifted physical person like I have to train really hard. I have to be very, very careful about expressing technique and learning new skill acquisition. And, and I'm not physiologically strong like other people are. But on a floor or on a competition day, I tend to express performance better than most people. As in physically, I will qualify last, but on the day, I will be in the top five, generally speaking, um, given the, the right arena and, and, and and skill set and I think can it, I say something yeah, yeah yeah please do your relationship with fear might have something to do with that as in unhealthy or healthy well possibly I, it seems like it's a healthy relationship if it's helping you perform better because mm. there's less fear not on game day but on game day when it's go time there's going to be fear fear of failure fear of fucking mm. it up right true and I tend to like so I have these um uh mental practices that I do and I'm very careful because they're 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 very finite like you they take so much energy because they're emotional expressions of energy um that the closer i get to a competition day the more i like to believe that this is what it'll feel like and i'll, I'll replay this feeling and that that the, the closer i get to the performances start to enact that this sounds really esoteric because it kind of is but you can if i can map what it's going to feel like right before as in okay i can imagine the crowd i can imagine the competition i can imagine how tight the scoreboard is or whatever the thing is that we're doing um if i can put those into place um closer to the event um, and i can't do it outside like if i'm two months out i can't do that because that is a waste of energy at that point and the emotional quality will actually put me at risk at hurting myself um, because the intensity goes up when you use that emotional quality as energy. But if I place that emotional quality closer to the event and I can reenact it when it actually the hammer drops and it happens, there's almost like if I did it correctly, there's almost like this joy in the fear of all of that happening. Like with all the madness going on, there's like this smile that overcomes me because no matter what the outcome is, I know that I, I'm fully prepared for this moment. And that it, it doesn't take any of the fear away. It's still terrifying. It still hurts. I still know I'm going to like be in more pain than I've ever prepared for. But um, that energy that goes into the emotional preparation, I think, pays off in competition. So you might, I, I describe it differently than what you just described it as, but I think we're talking about the same thing. And I never imagined that would be what extreme athletes thought. And one of the revelations to me about reading about your experience and understanding extreme sports is that 
you're not just this thrill seeker. Like you're not an adrenaline junkie and you address this very well. And we, me and Mark have talked about this. Um, you have, uh, you're a preparation seeker like that. Not a, not a thrill, not an adrenaline junkie, but you more or less want to test your ability to prepare for something. Wouldn't that be correct? No, I'm different. Okay. Um, like Alex Honnold mm -hmm. just climbed El Cap without mm -hmm. ropes. Right. And he <laughs> prepared for that for, I think, years. Mm -hmm. You know, he knew every single hold. Um, I am not like a, I don't do visualization. You know, people that are, tend to be um, more in their heads. I think that's a really good resource to use their thoughts and their, you know, visualization to things like that, uh, like getting to know um, all the players uh, in the game and, and uh, visualizing what the day is going to be like. Like that can be really good resource for some people. For me, I'm more, I just show up and I just feel what I feel and then I just see what happens next. Do what you need to do. Yeah, like I, I made it on the U.S. ski team for moguls. I never had a goal to make it on the U.S. ski mm. team for moguls. All of a sudden, I just wound up on the U.S. ski team wearing the jacket. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> like how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> I just had, I really didn't have any ambition to be here, but okay, now what am I going to do with this? And back then, I was making a lot of mistakes around emotions and mm. kind of I screwed it up and that's another story. But, um, you know, when you say emotional preparation, if, if it works for you, great. Mm -hmm. Um, but oftentimes emotional preparation is people get busy trying to kind of get rid of their emotions or calm their emotions down. And so, you know, I was called fearless during my ski career mm. and I felt fearless. And it seemed to me like the media was more obsessed with my ability to do this thing with fear that everybody wants to do such that I was fearless um, than my skiing even itself. And so... And I truly did not feel fear, to a fault, actually. I believe my own hype. But since I've become a fear specialist and I've really started to dissect what happened during my ski career, I realized my entire ski career was about fear. For example, I was motivated by fear of being invisible or fear of not being loved. Mm. Well, you jump off a 70-foot cliff, people really love you, you know? You're not invisible. I was also addicted to feeling fear because fear and excitement are the same thing. I was a, I was an excitement addict. People call people like me or adrenaline addicts, you mm. know, but really beneath the excitement, beneath the adrenaline is fear. Like I was obsessed with it. I was like chasing it. It was my heroin. It was, it was actually to a fault. I think if there's not a sensation of fear, there is no adrenaline. Right. And the right? more, like it has to, right. The, the one is a response. I mean, that's a response to mm. the emotion. Right. So, I mean, I, I, if I wasn't feeling fear, I didn't feel alive. I felt dead, you know, and it, it got to be a real problem, actually. And then I was also repressing fear to the extreme in order to ski the way I wanted to, which sounds like a contradiction. It's definitely a paradox, like either love or you hate something, right? Mm. But you can, if, if your whole life is about one thing, absolutely you can love and hate it at the same time. Your dog, your relationship, your job, like 
you love and hate it at the same time, right? So I was chasing it to the extreme. I was repressing it to the extreme. And so I did some things right by fear, you know, which is I learned how to merge with it, become intimate with it, and have it take me into those higher states of awareness uh, called flow, the zone, whatever you want to call it. Like we get there, like extreme sports are notorious for taking people into those higher altered states Mm -hmm. because of the fear, not despite the fear, because of the fear. We kind of get that wrong. We're not conquering anything out there. We're merging with it. And it's making us more sharp and focused and in the present moment. But I was also repressing fear to the extreme. And that's why I wrote the book, because it it works for about 10 years. You can get away with <laughs> repressing fear for about 10 years and be fearless, right? But I had to become such a rigid, stoic, arrogant, manly person to not deal with my fear. I didn't like who I was. I felt inauthentic. Mark and I talked about this. I'd lost my femininity. Um, and I, you know, started having a lot more injuries. So after about 10 years, you start to have a lot of injuries if you repress fear because you're mm-hmm. so rigid and stoic and you're not kind of moving with the wind like a tree needs to. And so you snap, you break. I was so burnt out. I started to hate skiing. I started to dread winter. And hate is a very strong word. It's not inappropriately used here. Like, I was so burnt out from fighting this internal war against this huge primary emotion that was with me every single moment of every single day and being in denial of it that that, you know, what do you know about a country that's at war for 10 years? You've taxed all your resources. Everybody's exhausted. And so was I. Um, and that's where my burnout came from. And I also had PTSD. And we're going to start to see more extreme athletes that are struggling with PTSD because we see our friends die in the mountains. You know, we, I've seen two friends die. I've watched probably 30 people get crippled for life. I've had over 50 near-death experiences. And if you don't know how to deal with the emotions that are around those super um, intense ne- negative, I, I say it in quotes because I don't see any emotions as being negative, but those really intense emotional experiences, if you don't know how to deal with the emotions, you lock them in the basement, you throw away the key, they're just going to come up and just ruin your life. And uh, so that's why I quit my ski career and tried to figure out what had gone wrong. And then I very quickly realized that I'd been repressing fear to ski the way I wanted to, uh, which led to me writing this book and sitting here today. And people, um, they might think you just did this through two pairs of skis, jumping off of stuff, but you actually sought to feel this stuff basically all the time. And that's what led to all these, what I would call little micro adventures. They were not like biking through India. You mentioned a couple going through Asia. I, um, did your, your exposure in Asia at a young age, walking around how you describe it, uh, I'll let I'll let you kind of describe it to elaborate on it. Cause you talk very shortly about it in the book. Is that, um, did that exposure lead to an understanding or at least kind of an attraction to Zen or that, that form of Buddhism? Um, yes, and and I will say I, I'm I'm not a Buddhist. Like mm-hmm. I don't consider myself into Buddhism. I'm into Zen, which is different. Um, there's Zen Buddhism, sure. and the Buddhism is um, the study of what the historical Buddha taught. Mm-hmm. Some see it as a religion. Some see it as a philosophy. Um, Zen Buddhism is one form of Buddhism, and Zen Buddhism is to become one with the Buddha or to feel what the Buddha felt. But you could take the word Zen out of Buddhism and put it in front of another religion like Zen Christianity or Zen Islam, you know, to become one with Christ, to become one with Muhammad. That's where the term atonement comes from, right? 
I have uh, yes, sure. At one mint. <laughs> At the, one, oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so take the word Zen completely out of religion or philosophy whatsoever, and Zen is to just become one with. Hmm. You know, and I I started off talking way back about ten thousand children. Hmm. And I said that there's two ways of living your life. And the first way is what we see as Zen, to become one with joy and love and gratitude. But to deny fear and anger and sadness its rightful place in our life, lock it in the basement, get rid of it, replace it with something else that's more light and positive. Um, that's actually not Zen. What Zen is to become one with your life, all, you know, take all your children out of the basement, feed and love and nurture and show off to the world, you know, look at all my, my wonderful children, look at, you know, and, and that's not to say, oh, show off how scared you are, show off how angry you are, but have a healthy relationship with these children, um, be considerate of them. And that's actually Zen, see all that life has to offer and see the wisdom in all of it. And so I've kind of gotten off track a no, little bit, okay. but back to India, you know, I skied in jeans until I was 20 years old. And aside from a couple ski lessons in second grade, I had no physical training whatsoever. And uh, I became world-class at two completely different sports within three years after buying my first pair of ski pants. Uh, that was mogul skiing and big mountain extreme skiing. I was all of a sudden on the US ski team for moguls and I was considered the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world. And three years ago, I wouldn't even spring for a pair of ski pants. Like what the hell happened there? You know, what happened was Asia, actually. Um, I, the year before that this all happened, I decided to go on a trip to Asia by myself. I didn't even know where Asia was. And uh, I had two rules for that trip. The first rule was because I, I felt like I had a self-esteem problem and that my self-esteem was based on the fact that I was pretty and the fact that I could ski well. I realized that I wasn't always gonna be pretty, I wasn't always gonna ski well, and so I wanted to work on my self-esteem. So my rules were I was gonna make myself as ugly as possible, wear Coke bottle glasses, you know, wear frumpy clothes, not wash my hair, and I wasn't allowed to talk about skiing. So I went there for four months, and I also, like, because I'm a fear addict, right? Little did I, I had no idea that that was the case, but I really put myself in super scary situations. Like, I, I wound up getting um, robbed by a group of people in the Philippines and had to lead the country at gunpoint. I almost lost my right leg to gangrene due to hundreds of leech bites. Um, I volunteered for the uh, Mother Teresa's house for the destitute and dying in Calcutta, India. I went to Bangladesh for a couple of weeks just to kind of uh, um, submerge myself in such rabid poverty and misery like just what is that all about you know there's no like tourist hotels in Bangladesh it was very intense four months of my life and I came home and I hadn't thought about skiing or talked about skiing for four months and I the season started and I started competing in mogul competitions and three months later I was on the U.S. ski team and before I left on that trip I had taken last place in every mogul competition I had ever entered regionally and all of a sudden I just won everything and I was competing against girls that had gone to the best high school ski academies, had the best coaches. They'd been skiing on glaciers the whole summer. I come back, no training, nothing. And just by working on, uh, just by kind of merging with fear, chasing fear and working on my self-esteem and, and um, having a Zen experience with all my, like with despair and misery and anger and frustration. And, you know, that wasn't a joyful, it wasn't a fun trip. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> like no. that turned me into a world-class athlete. And that same year, I also jumped off my first cliff and started being called the best woman, big mountain, extreme skier in the world. Bam. <laughs> Some, do you want to drop the mic right now? Do you want <laughs> <laughs> Like that's, you know, if, I, I, if you can merge with all these 10,000, I call them children, mm. but 10,000 states of being, like if you can just completely um, submit to life, not just the good stuff, but the horrors and fear and, you know, frustration and anger and sadness, like that's, that's what's going to make us be magnificent out there. Not the radical denial of the negative, but actually the radical inclusion and kind of uh, like in Zen, the, the number is 10,000, like these mm. 10,000 states of being, um, half of them are good, half of them are bad, are 10,000 wisdoms, 10,000 motivators. Uh, that's, so yes. How did um, <laughs> fear con as an emotion or like a, a strong primary emotion as you described it, how did it... Uh, come to be described as negative oh my gosh thank god you've asked that question oh no okay stop it shut <laughs> up you, you you can't you, you can't answer start an answer with that or 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 start an answer with i'm glad you asked that that's a really good question well this has all I'm, been I'm just super pausing I, <laughs> i'm just buying time because buying i'm like time. how okay. the hell am i going to answer that i mean i mean i don't know if there I mean, necessarily there, there, there is an answer but there's there, there's two things you know how did it become negative and then the second part of that is like why do you think people are afraid to accept you know slash confront that particular emotion like what is like the the, the emotion itself causes um an amplification of the emotion i would have to do a lot of research to figure this out but my guess is that if you look at pictures of our grandparents you know they stand there looking stoic you know right like emotions used to be seen as very frivolous Certainly, joy for that matter. You know, and do you think just, that's a do you think that's a Western thing? Do you think that's a you know a, a puritanical sort of I think North America? Yeah, it's vibe it's that, more of a Western thing. Just all you have to do is look at funerals to see the difference. Like uh, a funeral in I don't know. I'm I'm pulling this out of my ass. Like uh, Islamabad, right? Like the, they wail and scream and cry and and express their emotions. But what do we do in America? I went to a funeral and. Uh, the, the wife was there, her husband died young, and, and she was just stoic. And everybody said, oh, she's handling this so well. Like, that's crazy to me. So, so we, we began to, as a society, for whatever reason, I mean, obviously there had to be some beneficial that, you know, outcome to um, not expressing emotion. At, at, at some point, because it's a characteristic that um, I mean, you have recognized. We see that this has, this has developed. It, it is somewhat commonplace and, I mean, must be because people got to be fucking educated about feeling what's going on inside themselves and noticing it and, you know, ex accepting it as opposed, to, you know, um, if, if, if they need that lesson, then clearly there's this, there's a, um, a, 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 an accepted way of consciousness or a way of behavior um, that, uh, I mean, you had to write this book. Like I, you know, hearing all of all, all of this and having participated in, you know, a not dissimilar, you know, some experiences, but, um, but some of the, uh, uh, let's see, access to, 
uh, I mean, I'll use I'll use the language, even though I don't agree with it. Spiritual intelligence or emotional intelligence, by way of ex- of of um, using my physical intelligence. Um, so we've shared some sort of similar uh, things, and so it all seemed that, that everything that you're talking about just seems so fucking normal to me. And and it was the same way having the sort of conversation, you know, having the conversation with Stephen, like Flo, yeah. Uh, of course yeah can we move on and talk about something interesting because that just that that uh, it's 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 a redundant conversation for me because i had it for however many years and and so those things seem normal like you know accepting and feeling the fear uh, um uh what did you say caring for it in a way um seems completely normal to me and so i i'm i i I didn't want to go sort of back to the source and figure out like how the fuck did we paint ourselves into this corner to the extent that things which are normal and natural um, have to be uh, educated. People have to be educated about them or, or re-educated um, in, in order to actually um, sensitize themselves to notice what's happening and why certain situations cause certain emotional responses and then addressing that. They have to be educated about that, which suggests to me that they were um, educated about the opposite at some point or conditioned in some way. And what was the fucking benefit of that? All right. That, that produced that result. Well, you may be innately born with the ability to feel your emotions, maybe at a genius level. I think that, and I've never actually thought this before until this moment, but I'm wondering if extreme athletes are not just naturally gifted with emotional intelligence, um, certainly around the subject of fear or around the emotion of fear, and that they're willing to feel it. They, They see innately the gift that is fear. They... It, are are any of these athletes aware of that when they're in their 20s hell no you mm. know i would say that most extreme athletes just Ooh, i would, would disagree but yeah well uh, but i but i wouldn't well, say that all of them i wouldn't say it's a universal condition i've interviewed um, a lot of them you'd be surprised 99 mm. percent of extreme athletes and i was no different repress fear in order to perform the way they want to but we're just starting to see more and more athletes, like I talked to Jeremy Jones, arguably the best snowboarder, big mountain snowboarder in the world, uh, Laird Hamilton, um, we know who he is, arguably the best big wave surfer in the world, Jesse Richmond, best kiteboarder in the world, um, Shane McConkey, best skier in the world. Like all these guys uh, kind of use similar language around fear that I capture in my book, which is they have an intimate relationship with fear. And then you speak to everybody else who's not the best in the world and they say, oh, I conquer fear. I put it out of my mind. I'm not, I'm not afraid of anything. Like, it's, You'd be really surprised at how many extreme athletes, but they'll say that. But then when I start to dig a little deeper and I start to kind of introduce some of the theories that are in my book, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe that's true. Because if you had asked me back in the day when I was in my 20s, what's your relationship with fear? I'm like, oh, I, I don't feel any fear. It's just not even... I don't even consider it is, you know, like I don't, we don't know what's going on, but there's some magic that's going on with us in fear that I've been able hopefully to capture. Uh, hopefully you guys see that in my book. Um, but my book is not about athletics. My book specifically is about helping laymen deal with fear in a more honest, considerate way. Maybe somebody that's born 
uh, incompetent at being able to feel their emotions. And, you know, I will say that somebody asked me the other day, if you could wave, wave a magic wand and create any one thing for the world, you know, what would it be? Would it be world peace, you know, solving you know, cancer, what, what would it be? And I said, emotional intelligence would be taught in schools at a very young age, because I feel like that would solve kind of all of our problems. You know, certainly it would solve depression and anxiety disorders, panic attacks, PTSD, um, burnout, underperforming, insomnia, um, but, you know, because we're all repressing emo our emotions, we're not dealing with them. We're then projecting all our shit on each other. And, you know, we, we see like wars and, and uh, just people not owning their shit. It's going to affect our interpersonal relationships. And we're, we're not going to have inner peace because we're going to be at war with ourselves. Like the greatest wars in the world are, you know, not external. They're internal. The greatest wars that we have on this planet are the wars that we have with our own selves. The, the greatest war we have is the war that we have with fear carried out in our unconscious mind. And if you end that war, you know, imagine how much more peaceful you feel. And then, of course, now you can uh, kind of work towards global peace. Like, I, for me, that's everything. You mean clean your own house? Clean your own house. Before you start right. going places to try and clean others. Yeah. Right. Deal with your shit rather than projecting it on other people. I, I remember one time I was sitting Oh, but it's so much more satisfying to... Oh. Uh, <laughs> right. To, you know, engage in internet fighting, for Yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay. No, but that guy commented can... on my page. Yeah, so he's yeah. in my business. Right. I'm, just, exactly. I'm cleaning my house. You're cleaning your house. You're cleaning him up out of your house. You can delete the comment. I, I would say that yeah. <laughs> part of the efficiency speak is that we used to say, maybe this is the equivalent of something, is that um, if you take away one amenity out of our human culture today, you immediately remove every comment off of YouTube. Like get rid of dishwashing machines and just the efficiency that was there is now a 10 minute ordeal as opposed to a 30 second ordeal. And now nobody has time to bicker about the small thing. So in essence, what I was going with the uh, Greeks developing, you know, this thinking and logical and intellectual, they had the leisure time, Socratean belief system within which they do it. Right. The, the platonic thing, it, it, it came kind of, I mean, almost to our demise that we're not just animals foraging as in now we have the bandwidth to expand now okay the argument against whatever i'm saying is going to be ultimately well we can have um, better experiences which you know i think is contextual um we can have these what we would call big mind or higher experiences um and I would say because of because of the efficiencies that we've learned, the technology that we developed to give uh, to, to allow us to spend less of that finite energy on um, sort of survival type stuff. Right. And, and so that allows we us compare to think consciousness to... like we, we, but we can't even identify consciousness like that. That is the hard problem in philosophy and in neuro neurologically speaking. We have no idea where consciousness comes from. Which is why we're fundamentally perplexed when we talk about AI systems, which is funny that Stephen Cutler is going down that fucking wormhole because I would love to jump into that hole. But we don't know at what point machinery that has synapses and electricity becomes self-aware. And therefore, we describe something kind of artificially. Like what we, we describe us as a hierarchical um, being because 
we have a more conscientious practice. But I don't think that's necessarily true because how you describe Zen um, and, and how I would actually state that I've practiced Zen in the past is we're trying to actually achieve the consciousness of inanimate objects to be ineffected but affected at the same time. Like we all secretly or maybe unknowingly respect a rock's consciousness over an animal's because a rock is affected by the weather. It's affected by the terrain and time, geologically speaking. Um, but it doesn't have these breakdowns like we do emotionally, which is seems like a hindrance of like to get to the point that you are now the amount of suffering that you had to go through to get to what I would call a more enlightened state um, is fuck. It's a waste of time to a rock, but we don't respect the rock. We respect the human that gets to this point. The rock never needed to get there in the first point. Does that make, am I being clear? Well, the question is, does a rock, well, the wrong question is, does a rock feel fear? Does a rock have fear? Does no, a tree can't. have fear? Uh, well, apparently a pitcher of water has fear. So, uh, you know, the <laughs> okay, that's right? why you write nice words on the picture before you <laughs> right, drink it, right, so exactly. it has more nutrients. So I don't get in Certainly trouble I with people screaming into their audio set while they're listening to this thing. We'll write down. Okay. So there is consciousness as it responds to pain is almost our only indicator of a higher being. Therefore, a fish is on less of a spectrum of consciousness than a dog, which is on less of a spectrum of consciousness than a human. And a plant is below that. Although I would argue that, you know, most cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower have a central nervous system. So we don't know. But I heard the wheat crying out as it was <laughs> it's set, harvested. It shed a single tear. Yeah. I, <laughs> it, but, but worse. But I do want to I want to identify it. that because that's a bookmark like I'd like to Okay, so w this is how we identify the hierarchy for consciousness. It's so today. fucking self-serving. Of course it is. <laughs> so so like so uh, it, and, and because it's a self-serving conclusion, it's obviously fucking wrong. Like if if the o o we only sort of separate ourselves or identify ourselves as higher consciousness because we can feel pain in these mm. other um, uh, creatures uh, uh, stuff. What do you call broccoli? It's not a creature. It's a fucking. I got thing. it. I got okay. it. It's cellular uh, organism. Cellular. <laughs> there we go. Um, okay, I got it. I got it. You ready? I'm ready. Drop it. All right. So fear needs humans to become conscious of itself, and the infinite needs humans to become conscious of itself. Now you're you're walking a thin line on <laughs> panpsychism. So which which I would say is 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 me saying like why did you I, why I did you push him towards that rabbit hole? You didn't even you didn't even like right, hesitate. I'm, I'm putting a, a kibosh on this right now. You no. ready? I'll, I'll, okay. I will equivocate well, I'm your comment talk about really Bambi. quickly. <laughs> Let's, I was going to say, I abort the universe when I die is, is, is no, my you, equivalent. You emerge with it. It's, <laughs> See, it goes back to me wanting You're to become part of the food chain. You're not a separate drop of water. <laughs> you become part of the whole ocean. I already am. That's true. Okay. Uh, so, the, well, the, uh, the, the whole purpose of, of talking about this. Because Wait, I want to talk about that some more. <laughs> You're on the, on the ocean? We just haven't woken up to the fact that we are already part of the, you know, I want to stick my finger down my throat right now. Good. Because some <laughs> this whole like trying to get rid of your ego phenomenon that's going on in, in new age on. movement <laughs> yes, is like, come on, we're here to have a human experience. We're, you know, we're, we get to merge with the infinite when we die. Like, I want to be here. I want to be Kristen. 
You know, the, I want to, um, and part of the human experience, bringing it back to fear, like I always will, is to feel fear. Is to feel fear. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I, I have to do that? Like yes, that's part of it? That's like that's one of the- part of the deal. One of the tickets I have to punch before I- like punch get out. to go back before I punch out. Before I, <laughs> I would agree, and, and this is this, this is this becomes you know highly philosophical. At least talking, we've covered well. Allow me this because I've jumped over a bunch of potholes that I really wanted to dive into, especially the intelligence one, because that that is a that's a, a fascinating subject to me because I think very few people have an understanding of what intelligence is, and I'd like to expand on that possibly at another time. This one on the on the consciousness mark um the reason why to think about it becomes important like why think about thinking as kind of the the, the but we're here example. to talk about emotions i want you know if you want to have a healthy relationship with your emotions you've got to stop thinking about them and start learning how to feel them but i think that's part of consciousness and, and so w when we describe the system when you describe the system and, and you split it into four parts you're doing a disservice to your own method so when you say there's emotional intelligence, there's this thinking experience, and we need to segregate and think about the emotional experience, you're also in, in the same way uh, dismantling your argument for Zen practice, which is atonement. I mean, I, this is one of my things. Is like I don't see any difference. Like the, the, the need to segregate um, uh, intelligence into specific categories um, because that they they cannot exist like a physical intelligence exists uh without the other yes it, i right. mean it exists it, it it requires an emotional intelligence it requires an intellectual intelligence it requires a spiritual intelligence for it to flourish because that's an integral part of it it might be a smaller you know might, those things might be uh, lesser contributors to the whole than the physical intelligence of the very gifted and and um uh than further trained athlete, but they, they all those things are, are are inseparable, and we complicate it by trying to separate them in order to wrap our little tiny intellects around the you know a a, a subject which is too big for us, and so we you know uh, reduce it down to what we define as component parts in order to have a discussion about it, which is really a discussion about nothing it's it's the problem about specialization in the fact in the the analogy that we're looking for basically says like i can teach you about anatomy and physiology um and i can also teach you about uh neuroscience and brain pathways and psychology but what we're really talking about is a human being jumping like i don't need to know the latin term for the you know uh the quad i don't need to know all these specific things like you described in your book very very well and i've heard this is the second time i've heard that I, I don't i can't remember where i first heard the parable but the uh a guy gets shot with an arrow and two people rush over to help him and one of them tells him like okay tell me about the arrow the guy that shot you and he's like oh is this guy from another tribe and he's like okay uh this kind of arrow it comes from this tree and the feathers are from this bird and the and the point is made out of this metal and the other guy just goes about fixing it and you're like 
in most cases, we're doing the asinine thing by over-describing, over-complicating. And that's why I think it you might... pedantic fuck get out of my way so I can remove the arrow. <laughs> in which case, like how I say, okay, subcategorizing is useful in order to um, explode an anatomical view of what maybe our body or process or experience goes through. But essentially, you have to merge them in order to have an accurate view of them. Well, ironically, there's a fifth intelligence. <laughs> and I, I believe I gave it a sentence in my book. It's called systems intelligence, mm -hmm. okay. which is where you see how they're all connected. And uh, like the mind and body connection is mm -hmm. hard to mistake, you know? Um, if you have no mind, you know, you can't f uh, sense your emotions, feel your emotions. You'd be a tomato, right? We think that. But there is, some, there is an experience that is a tomato. Like, th this is the consciousness problem, is it? I would rather be Kristen than a tomato. And <laughs> if we were three tomatoes having a podcast right now, how do you think it would go? Oh, well, so, well, <laughs> well this is we, the argument. I'm, it's kinda, for sure. This is kind of happening. <laughs> I'm, <the heirloom. laughs> I'm definitely a cherry tomato. Um, well, this is, so this is, this is the idea behind aggrandizing our experience that I think we get into trouble with is because we put it in this hierarchy like, oh, well, we built buildings and look, we can go skiing and look, we can make podcasts to listen to. And oh, I go, well, we can't, not only can we go skiing, we can make a helicopter to take us skiing. Yeah, yeah, right. That, that sounds like this grandeur We've life. <laughs> and I We've... go, a fucking cephalopod doesn't need to do that. It doesn't need the internet. It can communicate without it. It doesn't need a helicopter. It doesn't need an automotive industry. It doesn't need any of this stuff it could quite possibly be the higher being when we're talking about this stuff, the experience of being a fucking octopus or whatever it is. Like uh, orcas communicate over thousands of miles without the fucking internet. They have complex emotional systems that attach themselves to, in which case they'd say, yeah, I don't really want to be a tomato unless it was to live out a BLT. What's this no, like, orca's uh, Instagram and, handle? Uh, exactly. Anything I can like do to, to get closer it. to bacon, yeah. I'm all for. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you do want to be a tomato. You don't <laughs> want to be Kristen. All right, back on track. So the reason why... What, what do you mean track? You what are we trying that to, was off track. No. The, the fact that, like... That there is no track here. It, it, well, this, hold on. This no, is this the... is. I have something that's going to bring this all okay, home, okay. right? Oh, I can like, hardly wait. Well, we we want to. <laughs> have you ever heart... heard of Jesus? <laughs> I have. Okay, <laughs> I thought this was the ending sales pitch. It, to I, yeah, I have this thing. <laughs> if you just sign here, <laughs> I have this guy that died for your sins. Yeah, <laughs> he sounds fantastic. Yeah, he does. I would totally like to have. Sounds like it sounds like a poor strategy. With but... him. <laughs> All right. So we're what we're trying to do is, you know, in my book, I have this game of ten thousand wisdoms, and I talk about the ten thousand children, the mm -hmm. ten thousand states of being. Like we really like to compartmentalize our lives so that we can just make sense of it because it's so confusing otherwise otherwise it's just like this crazy like outer space right mm -hmm. like we we want to map yes. out outer space as best we can and you know it's constantly changing dramatically changing but at least we have something kind of to just hang our hats on a little bit it's not so, a we that's 10 dudes with you know in a lab somewhere. right <laughs> like that's and and our lives are not improved by them mapping space no, I mean, it's interesting and essentially right. useless information. So how this is useful, though, is compartmentalizing different forms of intelligence is just because it maybe helps people have some awareness of, oh, I have these 
four baskets, you know, four different types of intelligence to take to the top of the mountain. You know, how if you had four baskets and they were pretty big, how would you take them to the top of the mountain? You couldn't carry them all at once. What's up there? Well, so I don't know. If Some, I was a high-powered CEO, I'd just hire some Sherpas. The, the going all the way with I'd your I'd pay them life. less than uh, market rate. Which though. we can do. <laughs> which we can do. Right? To carry our shit. To Make own somebody our else shit. carry it for you. Right. right like, yeah, okay. okay, I'm not going to deal with I my fear. You deal yeah. with it for me. Right? <laughs> so we have exactly one lifetime to take these four baskets all as far as we can up the mountain. And if we only take the basket that is mental intelligence to the top of the mountain, we will not have gone all the way with our lives. Uh, there's also how far can I take this physical intelligence? How far can I take this emotional? How far can I take this spiritual intelligence? And I'll tell you, there is no and, top of the mountain and with what, spiritual. Dr- what do I drag along when I carry uh, carry on with my physical intelligence? Right. Or where am I stuck? You know, I've been camping in the same goddamn place for 20 years now, and the view is pretty good. You know, not too bad. But if I were willing but to. But they're building of, new houses in front right. of me when they promised they wouldn't. And the view <laughs> right. is just I was just about to say, have you seen Base Camp? It's, it's kind of a shit. Right. Hole. Yeah. Yeah. Too many people. <sighs> so, what, how you take four baskets to the top of the mountain is you can maybe take two at a time, but really you kind of go back down and you get another one. And, and for somebody who is struggling with depression or panic attacks or. Um, I think segregating me, conscious like that is like a, is, is, is. The, sort of the wrong way to go to to go about it, but but I I I will I grant you that. Um, How do you know what to the, work on next if you don't have this kind of awareness? Though it's like, what should I be working on? You know, I can't tell you how many people well, but, who are but, having but problems. What standards am I comparing it to so that I know that like uh, so that I can identify one of my baskets versus another that might require some attention. Like whose norms are, you know, uh, are sort of steering me towards, you know, paying attention to a particular basket. Well, I say, you know, you, you, you take down all the norms and then the, the, the need to segregate all this stuff goes away. Because, because essentially what people are doing is, is um, comparing their condition or the condition of each of their baskets. If, we, if, if, if I accept this, I just have to use the language right now, though. But they're, they're, they are comparing that to other baskets, to other, okay, this is a highly evolved you know, physical basket over here. And, and you're obviously not a you know, highly evolved physical basket because you have type 2 diabetes. That's evolution of a different nature. Um, and, and so maybe you ought to work on that because we've identified this particular basket as the, the greatest expression of, you know, this person has taken this basket all the way you know, that developed to the, to the nth degree, to the final sort of highest, this, that, the other. And, and so it's, it's by way of comparison that we identify these characteristics that we have, that we want to fix. And comparison is not Zen. Sure it is. Everything's Zen. Ooh. <laughs> if you become one with uh, your comparison, wasn't well, that, wasn't, okay. that, wasn't <laughs> so, that the lead track on that great well, Bush album on. from 1995? Let, is misanthropy is that Zen? Everything's Zen. Okay. I don't even know what that means, but hatred sure. of the human species. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, right. This comes up to reading your. You he, hold a, on, here's, here's to you want to hear go. something yes. that's mm-hmm. kind of radical. My teacher said this to me once: if it's out there, it's in here, right? 
like if 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 it's been experienced in the history of the world it's in me like the you were saying mark with the water it's in me so in auschwitz there was a man that was seen taking a piece of food out of a starving baby's mouth in order to feed himself now think about that the food was in the baby's mouth mm. he reached in there probably violently pulled it out and scurried away putting it in his own mouth so my teacher said until you become aware of the fact that if given the right circumstances, you too are capable of taking a piece of food out of a starving baby's mouth in order to feed yourself, you can never truly be enlightened. You can never truly recognize exactly what you are. I, I agree with the that. well. I agree with the sentiment behind that is, is because there is no such thing as evil. There, there just isn't. That doesn't exist in the world. I, I drank some ayahuasca once and I saw it. I'm like, wow. There that's is such a, a thing as evil. <laughs> yeah, that's just because you disobeyed. But, okay, you were told so not to. I was, you're right. <laughs> How about in, in, in humans? Because we can take... Wait, wait, wait. Hang on one second. She told you not to do it again, but you wanted to be Kristen. And Kristen that, that gets what she wants. That was a different experience. That was uh, a different experience. And... Yeah. And, and you went back to the well after having been told not to go back because ego said, I'm different. I can handle this. I, can, I, I want to do this. Therefore, I will. And then she came back and kicked your little ass. That's yes, so she did. beautiful. And he's talking about a, a Grand, conversation. Grandmother has a backslap. Yes. Yeah. But, the, but what I'm talking about with evil was not that experience. Um, the evil that I saw was a, a giant spider that kind of attached itself to my face and started digesting me, my face um, next, alive. Next yeah, that's Burning Man car right there. Sort of, <laughs> I, I think that's what should come after the scorpion yeah. is the spider oh, car. Yeah, I build, my husband and I build art cars for Burning Man. I, I've seen one of these and I was in shock and awe and I didn't even know how to bring that up because that is a segue <laughs> that leaves me without any words is that you so okay insane let's machines. finish with four Let, baskets though can we do that we can try okay because I, I don't is it a finishable discussion or is it ongoing nah, it's ongoing but okay. you know we have to me and mark we, have an equation that might help you okay we'll bookmark that and we'll come back <laughs> okay. to it yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i asked her earlier today i said how much control do you take over interviews when you know when you have them and she said oh not at all i don't have time i don't, I don't bother with that that just seems like uh, <laughs> and here she is yep doing my best doing and i don't even idea? know i don't even know what i'm about to say oh, oh nice. Oh, so, oh even better oh, <laughs> i just don't I, really i'm don't zipping know. it I'm let's zipping just it. see That's... what happens <laughs> all right so for basket yes we compare our, ourselves to each other but let's say some guy has just nurtured his intellect. He worships it like a god, built a shrine to it. He sees himself as very smart, and he's having problems with his wife. What does he do? Then he goes to the shrink, and he tries to use his intellect to figure it out. And he talks and thinks and talks and thinks. And, you know, there's a great Einstein quote, no uh, problem can be solved by using the same consciousness that created it. You must learn to see the world anew. And he's just using the same consciousness over and over and over. His intellect, his intellect, his intellect, trying to figure it out. It's not going to work. At some point, you've got to realize that you've gone as far as you possibly can with this particular form of intelligence. That dude There's, needs to run yeah, a marathon. Yeah, you need and to- And that'll solve all the shit. You gotta, you gotta go find some other form, some other experience, mm. you know? Some go, other means of, of relating to yourself and relating um, yourself to the world. Right, or I see all the time people come to me and they're just so emotionally repressed and it made them billionaires, right? But now they're 50 years old, they're miserable. They have terrible interpersonal relationships. It's like, this isn't working anymore. 
I've got to try something else. My therapy isn't working. Like I've got to go and get a different basket and start nurturing and carrying that basket to the top. This these cantaloupes that I have in this basket, they just they every time I hit them with this hammer, they break, and I just don't understand. (laughs) Like I I thought I would. I thought if I just kept hitting them, I would make them into nails. I I would agree with you on that. The the Sufi parable that we talk about that explains that. You know, sorry, it's not Zen, but uh, it's very close. Uh, is the camel that gets you to the house is not the best mechanism to get you inside the house. Like just because it traveled so far with this successful thing doesn't mean. Oh that wait, didn't that translate? That Seth fellow write a book, you know that was Seth totally based on that parable. I don't. Did know. he just re, didn't he just re, repurpose that parable? The other one is the vest that saves your life in the jungle is the thing that kills you in the ocean. But. My story is. The guy that tries to rescue the guy from the tree by throwing up a rope and having him tie it around his waist and then pulling him down, <laughs> right? He's like, wow, you know, the guy has two broken legs now. Like, geez, it really worked great last week when I pulled that guy out of the well. Mm. We, we do find that. I mean, in our artificial little environment where we, ex, you know, expressively give people greater uh, accesses to physical fitness, um, that, that applies directly. It's like... Oh, but last year when I want to get ready for this thing, I just did this. And the variables are too vast to to consider why that doesn't work, mostly um, because we are beings that don't like repetitiveness. Like our, our bodies don't respond well to exact and similar and replicated experiences. Not could they not only not be replicated, but that's just not how evolution or adaptation works. Put that on a long timeline and you uh, voluntarily decide to quit skiing one day. <laughs> so speaking of evolution, we're taking it back to fear. We're trying to evolve past the lizard brain. We're trying to evolve past the amygdala. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lizard brain finds that very offensive and is screaming and yelling and you know, but you've built but the way you described it, you built the problem into the description. <laughs> my, my lizard <laughs> brain started a Twitter account, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that we are consciously trying to evolve. And we're like, tr- whoa, just fucking step back and uh, steer, quit pushing. And we're we're or putting more and hands more off entirely and investment in science and our intellect and our ability to reason. Uh, you know, and we're leaving our emotions behind. Because, um, because a certain, let's just say it's something rewarded us into thing like this is the higher of these four forms of intelligence. Well, I wouldn't discount. And therefore we want to emphasize that, therefore we focus on that and the outcomes that come from it. And I agree, leaving these others behind and making us um, lose our ability to speak those other languages. Yeah, and it's not working. Like everybody's on opioids and antidepressants and we're pickled in anxiety and people have such a hard time sleeping and it's just pickled in anxiety (laughs) it's not working (laughs) right i don't know it's just going to get worse and worse you have to identify success i was going to say but that may be working like if we are a virus, yeah, we're just working. And towards the Earth extinction. is trying to fucking eradicate, you know, get rid of us. That'll do it. It's like it. Ho- uh, this and this is the can't problem. Wait, swarm it, of locusts, please. We tend to think that <laughs> <laughs> we tend to. Well, we we confer because we think we're at this. You know, the uh, grandiose. Uh, we are at the pinnacle of any kind of animal species. That 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 is most humans conception of their being which i think is false for many different reasons is that 
evolution led to this point and evolution was based off of happiness for some reason. And it's not. It's just on survivability and you know proliferation of a species. It's like who much eats, like who gets virus. eaten. And therefore, okay, we... Uh, I didn't know where I was going with We're that. making an okay, omelet go. and we're breaking every fucking egg. I have asked probably a thousand people by now, hmm. which would you rather feel? Happy or alive? Not which would you rather be. We all want to be alive. But which would you rather feel, happy or alive? And all but two people said alive. And aliveness comes from our emotions. The tomato would argue with that. No, I'm just <laughs> The tomato would argue with that. Here's, if here's, it had a mouth so, and a brain. I agree with, uh, with most of what you say. Um, and where we would disagree, you could barely fit di- daylight in there. So I agree that like these process, mostly there's a language problem in, in most of these cases. And you've established uh, a good language for probably speaking to people that we want to have accidents on mountains with their baskets. So in, in that in that term, I, I think- urge you to try and carry all four. <laughs> I'm going to help you get as high up as you can possibly get, but not quite to the top. And then I'm going to ditch you. I will. So and, I'm going to argue this and make popcorn. This might surprise most people, but um, large sections of massive different populations, however you want to segregate them and identify them. Um, they all want the other half to die in in, ex, in extremely excruciating ways. Whether it's broken up religiously, where you're like Christians actually believe that you know every Muslim and every every Buddhist and every Zen practitioner and every uh, they want you to have a, a maybe not want, but for not believing like them, they want you to have a eternal damnation and torturous experience. I, on the other hand, think I have a little bit bigger population. I think that 10% are worth a damn. I'm not part of that 10%, by the way, just to 10% are progressive. 10% of people I think are like Mark who are writing things, experiencing things at such a level that they're, they're having the optimal human experience. He might disagree with that. I, I see him as helping other people. I'm part of the percentage under that, which is the 20% under the 10% that clings to people like the 10 percenters with dear life and try to emulate their actions uh, as best I can. So 70% of the population that's below what I would call my demographic, I think needs some sort of like massive, I don't know, tornado to like just separate and recharge evolution. Now, people will think that that's misanthropic and that that's like very evil. Um, you're, I say you're, you're playing the long game, though. I say that's <laughs> I say that's humane because every other population wants you to damn you to eternity in hellfire, and I'm just saying that you should like get mixed up in a bad hurricane. And this is just people in the Western world. You know, there's also mm. this whole huge population are just trying to feed their children. Wait, what? Yeah, sorry. No, where? Sorry, non sequitur. <laughs> hey, if it's not America, no. <laughs> but I, I see what you're saying. That's, and I, I believe that my book will help those seventy percent, and I think that it'll be interesting to the other thirty. Uh, it was. It was very interesting to me. Um, in my lower 20, I'll call myself the lower 20%, but <laughs> not the bottom 20%. They're fucking worthless. Don't help them at all. Don't even give them your book. Give them baskets full of cement and push them in the ocean. The The equation that I was talking about earlier is this. Ah, nihilism. <laughs> Everything comes down to it doesn't matter. But 
<laughs> it's helped us be fruitful. It might not help you. You know, I will say that I think that actually there are some serious overachievers out there <laughs> who are really struggling and are miserable. It'll help them too. And as for annihilism, what's your definition of that word? Um, that the universe, so the definition of the system of belief is that the universe does not have meaning, but I say as a form of um, not abbreviation to the actual definition, the universe does not give me meaning, but you can assign meaning individually to the universe. That's it. Is that a bad thing? No, I don't, I, I, I don't think it's a bad thing because it doesn't artificially obligate you to anything. Well, I know just in practical terms, I want to try and live the most magnificent life I can. Mm. I want to experience everything, mm. the good, the bad. Um, I, I remember hearing a story about Dr. Spock and uh, he was given some sort of elixir that would make him kind of feel his motions and taste things and, and, be human, basically. Oh, oh, the fictitious Dr. Spock. Yeah, the, yeah. Not the, not the, and so he sat down at the, the bar and... <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the, the bartender gave him some just disgusting drink and he, Dr. Spock drank it. He's like, oh my God, that is disgusting. That's vile, repulsive. And the bartender said, would you like some more? And he goes, yes, please. Right, that's me. <laughs> like, I just, I just want to experience it all. Like for me, joy, love, gratitude, happiness is freaking boring. Like... You know, I, I didn't marry a guy because he was nice. Like, nice is, like, overrated. It really is. Like, all you have to do is sit at a stop, a four-way stop in Salt Lake City, you know, in, in Mormon capital of the world, and just sit there, and everybody's trying to out-nice each other, and it's like, fucking go already, right? Like, for me, like... See, the that, was th that would have been the brilliance of Y2K. People are worried about, like, computers <laughs> crashing and this and that. And I'm like, uh, and the, 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 the whole, you know food delivery system is going to go down and people are going to start. I'm like, you're all going to be stuck at four-way stops. That's exactly what's going to happen. The world is going to just die in gridlock because, and it won't be because nice. It's just because like no one can make a fucking decision until the man on horseback comes along. And if Y2K had happened, it might've, train it might've been run on time. Sorry. It, nothing. Go it, ahead. It might've been the best thing that ever happened to humanity. Sure. Oh, it right. It actually yeah. would have been pretty awesome. It would have totally re control alt delete. Like, you know, <laughs> you do that to your computer. It's like all of a sudden wait, new wait. possibilities, all the viruses and bugs are gone. You do that to your computer precisely because there's a virus involved that exactly. we just control well, you don't alt delete the human species. Yeah. No, no, I agree. 100. Well, we are in I don't total mean agreement. control alt delete the human species but yeah. what you know there's a lot of things that we're doing is that like the nicer way to put it <laughs> okay. like sh oh, we, it. we made a really <laughs> shitty diagram on this thing let's shake it and start oh over my God. like we're all still here that sketchboard doesn't get hurt you know i like that better because it, it shows how you know we're still in infancy Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm playing with toys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Higher being my ass <laughs> still entertained. I got, I got an etch a sketch and a slinky. I'm good. <laughs> so back to my trip to Asia, like that was like <laughs> such a freaking radical shakeup. Yeah. I'm taking yeah. control again, yeah. right? That was such good, a radical shakeup. It was so unpleasant. I almost lost my leg to gangrene. I got robbed. Wait, I, wait, where did the leeches come from? Like what was the experience with the leeches? Because that, 
oh, I was trekking in Nepal and got lost and there was nobody around. The reason why there was uh, nobody around to ask directions to is because there was a tiger running around killing the locals. And so everybody had vacated that hillside. <laughs> and so I couldn't yes. find my way down for like 12 hours. And there was just so many leeches. And uh, it was, anyway, that's another story. So, but it just <laughs> erased my etch a sketch, you know? And I came back just unmolded clay. And I'm like, ooh. You know, here's a mogul competition. Like, you know, I'm going to go and express myself. Do you feel like um, some of the ski experiences that you chased, that you sought, consciously sought after were um, the sort of, uh, et, the, 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 the etch-a-sketch moment writ small instead of, so that I, okay, I, I think I can maybe sort of shake the little etch-a-sketch um, in the next 10 minutes I don't need maybe four months to do it. If I can do it sort of repeatedly through these other small acts of um, maybe annihilating self in a way. Or just doing something completely different than you've ever done it. Like fear, you know? The it, radical denial of fear in your life versus the radical acceptance of fear in your life. How much do you think that um, uh, risk is and and people's sort of perceived risk or even made up risk um is uh the thing that sort of allows or amplifies a sense of fear um and i'll just, I'll just say that yes in the mountains risk is what made me aware of everything that happened in me in any moment and uh, um Many of my early articles were written b based on having been utterly overwhelmed by fear. Maybe going in even even when I was young and thinking, oh, I can, I can put a stop to that. I can put a th put a thumb on that, and then realize, okay, that's not the way. The way is to to just uh, uh, let it happen, a and and learn how to fear that which should be feared, um, and learn to identify things that should cause fear and things that you know shouldn't or don't. Uh, but the fact of risk in the mountains was the thing that, you know, pushed me into sort of the, you know, to, to, to fully experience fear and develop a, I'm not, I won't, I would never say intimate relationship. It was a bit more, uh, BDSM sort of relationship that I had with, uh, <laughs> with fear and it with me, um, but I, I think now in, in, in a sense, much of fear uh, develops out of artificially sort of created risk that we that, that that we sense that we and 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 much of it's social, uh, which can be just as dangerous as physical risk uh, uh, to to all four baskets, if you will. Um, and I think we proved that pretty well in the gym that that, that you know sort of the 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 the, the social risk of. Um, appearing weak or, or not or not being able to live up to the self-image that you broadcast to other people when you get put in these certain situations I mean even though there's no physical risk you're not gonna you're not gonna get hurt doing this physically you, you will hurt you won't get hurt or you won't get injured um, but the, but the thing that seems to drive people harder than I mean especially in in the, the context of the gym is that when we can um, gamify in a way the the fitness tasks so that there is a sense of social risk and then um, people tend to uh, invest themselves 
um, to a higher ex- to a higher degree. But I, I I think that risk in let, let's say in skiing or climbing or whatever these physical risks, big waves, this th- that. Um, are the healthy forms of risk in sort in order to establish a relationship with fear, but socially constructed risk is I, um, perhaps the thing that, uh, puts us in an unhealthy relationship with fear. Here's what you need to know about fear. Fear is you with give us. me one more canned answer. I'm going to come over yeah. there. Here, here, <laughs> well, hold on. Because you just gave me a lot. And, I want, and I'm, I'm kind of like the super practical, you know, yes. like trying to put something in a easy, easily understood box, mm-hmm. you know. And that was just a lot of information. I want to I like fill the box with decorations and stuff. Yeah, okay. It's true. I do that. So... Um, Fear is with us every single moment of every single day in every single interaction we have, almost without exceptions. And yes, if you go back to like the first single cell, if there was a scientist there and there was fire there and there's a laboratory, right? What would we see? Well, that single cell, if exposed to fire, would move away from the fire in order to save itself. It has no arms, no legs, no spinal column, no brain, nothing. Like that's the origination of fear, you know, safe versus not safe. And so at this point, fear is with us on a cellular level. It's the oldest part of the brain, the amygdala, determining safe or not safe. And so fear is always there. It, it just being alive is a risky experience, you know? Like here we are, this little blue marble hurling through space, right? It's just a lot going on here. It's a lot to be afraid of. And so... If you were afraid of death. Um. Yeah, but even if you're not afraid of death and you're afraid of, look, I mean, there's, there's so many other things to be afraid of. Uh, of something to do with comparison, perhaps? Yeah, oh, sure. I mean, there's no end in sight of things to be afraid of. There really isn't. And everybody has different fears, you know. Um, fear is just a sensation of discomfort in the body, but there's fears and that's when the head gets involved. And so you talk about risk. Like, what is risk? Risk in relationship to fear is like you have your comfort zone and the second you step out of your comfort zone and there's fear in your comfort zone too mind you but the second you step out of your comfort zone you take a risk you decide to ask the girl out or you you know decide to give a speech you go to climb a mountain you're going to feel fear you're actually either consciously or unconsciously choosing to invite a bunch of fear into your life and uh so when you talk about instilling fear in people as a motivator um Absolutely fear will motivate people. I mean, it motivated me to being the best I can be. It's motivating me to show up in, in this podcast and bring my A game. It's like, I want to say something stupid. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of looking like an idiot, right? And so it's it's motivating me to show up. I can help you with that right, right now. Because after all Mark just said, out of all the intelligent conversation that's been happening, I came up with a URL, subfeardomhappy.com. <laughs> Subfear. Fear. I don't follow. <laughs> Subordinate fear, dominate happy. Duck. <laughs> the whole oh BDSM. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's I don't available. know which one to call daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that URL is available. Uh, oh, don't, there you would be shocked. They're shocked at what we've tried to look up. Entire 10 minutes of a podcast, which we have yet to launch spent with me trying to buy eatadick.com 
and it was taken, and virtually all of the variants thereof. Oh, all well, of the duh, suffix, of course. Yeah, yeah. But shockingly... But even hu- I've tried to buy that one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> even Hobo Handjob, however, is available. Uh, no. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't. And I think it was Kingry's friend. And Kingry thought that actually his friend may have bought it, the friend who came up with the ah, concept. Okay. Yeah. All right. What were we talking about? Risk. I, I, well, I was just talking about the fear of sounding stupid and now perfectly uh, accentuated by that divergent topic of so, so here's my point though here's my point like if you're feeling fear you know you're on the right path towards learning and growing because you've stepped out of your comfort zone and there's no learning and growing unless you're out of your comfort zone so and and going back to you saying that some of your best writing came after these super terrifying experiences. It's like we get to the end of our lives. Like, what are we going to remember? The The most poignant moments in our life are the times that we felt fear. Like I had some friends that went to Paris and they went to the Louvre and they went to the Eiffel Tower and they got mugged at gunpoint. I was going to say what they got, what they remember right? is when they got mugged or, right, like <laughs> or they their come car home, got broken into. Yeah. Right. What do yeah. they talk about? Yeah. Mug. Right, you got, mu- and it's so exciting to be around. Fuck, you didn't have to. And you didn't have to go all the way to France for that. But what's the difference between somebody, <laughs> right? Exactly, State Street. Yeah. So what's the difference between somebody that comes home and they're like, oh my god, that was inc- that was an amazing experience, and I learned so much, and it was like could actually become one of the highlights of your life for sure. Me almost losing my leg to gangrene was one of the highlights of my life, you know. But for somebody else, they have PTSD. What is the difference? You're going to wait for me to tell it? Yeah, because, I mean, I, I, I can speculate, but I want to... Well, I want to um, hear your speculation. I, I think it's a, um, a an un... Let's see, being unable to accept it and absorb it, assimilate it, or trying to say, I had this experience. It was a horrible experience. It challenged all of my values. It, I felt quite unsafe. I lost all of this stuff that I was... Um, apparently too attached to because it <laughs> because I noticed it going missing um, and I and then I uh, didn't allow myself the space or I did not have let's say the emotional intelligence to um, uh, to, to process that experience to, to assimilate to, 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 to um, uh, become that experience to wrap my arms around it and let it wrap its arms around me. Instead, I tried to repress, fight, control, and um, and then it just stayed with me. In a and my basket got heavier. Well said. And if I were to pose that question to anybody, they'd come up with their a similar version of their own unique answer. Like we get it that we're not supposed to repress our emotions, and yet we do it, and we teach it. To our children we teach it to our military i mean not explicitly but it's kind of rampant in our society um and it's it's just not working we're you know the, the well there are certain situations where there is no there there um it cannot be allowed to run free like emotion cannot be allowed to, to run free and 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 uh, right on, say it say it come, right come on ask me i don't uh, <laughs> ask you what? No, just disagree for a second. Because, because well, no, no, but, I don't disagree. You're right. What what we're aware of? But, but more, but I think the more important thing is th- there with that, which I was, 
hoping you would like push me into, but I'm going to dive in instead on my own, is that the, the reason that those situations where um, the, the emotion cannot be allowed to run free is generally because of the presence of other people who cannot handle it. Like I am in a small group of people. I'm in the mountains. And if, if, if someone um, lacks the capacity to handle the, 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 the emotion that is being that, that is being stimulated by a certain situation, um, then the other two people who do have the capacity to sort of to harness it, um, it is their duty to do so in order to protect that person from uh, the for, to keep them from having um, a transformative experience that may result in the deaths of all three. <laughs> all right. But, so this begs the question. Back to the baskets. What is emotional intelligence? Because I mentioned before that emotional intelligence is seen as our ability to intellectually understand our emotions and control them. So as to get along better, so as to not make somebody sure. feel uncomfortable. You know, that's the reason why we apologize when we cry. That's the reason why we walk away when we feel angry. Um, that's the reason why we hide our fear. Um, so let me give you an example. Uh, so I'm, I teach emotional intelligence. Uh, I teach a, a lot of other things, but that's what my book is about. And uh, so I had a really horrific experience happen to me a few years ago. I had a stalker and he put four bombs around my house and, you know, it was pretty intense and he wound up going to jail and they had to evacuate 40 houses and they brought in the hurt locker and, you know, I took off running and it was, it was really emotionally wild. And I, I do not doubt that. Yes. And this person that did this was my best friend of 20 years. So now cut to about eh, two weeks later, I ran into a friend of mine and this guy considers himself a life coach. And he said, boy, you know, how do you, and he's friends with both of us. How do you feel about that? I said, well, I'm angry. He said, oh, you can't be angry. You know, you, that is just going to eat you alive. You need to let that go and just be grateful for the fact that your house is still, I'm like, shut the fuck up. Right? I didn't say it that Excellent. way. Excellent. Uh, well, that's like, what I wanted it. to fuck, say. It's, it's like taking us two hours to get here. <laughs> right. <Finally. laughs> like, okay, that's not what I said to him because I, you know, yeah. what I said was stop trying, you know, I'm, I have a right to feel anger. You know, it's here to right or wrong. No, I have a, 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 a right. I have a right to feel anger and stop trying to get me to repress my emotions so that you can feel uh, so you feel better or so that you don't have to deal with them. Like, I'm just saying I feel angry. I'm not like screaming at him. I'm just saying I feel angry. Like we've gotten to the point where we can't even say I feel angry without somebody trying to shame me for feeling angry or telling me that I'm wrong or that I'm, you know, headed down a slippery slope. Like you got to feel don't anger, anger for a while. Me. Like don't <laughs> anger shame me, right? So that you can feel better about yourself or so you won't feel so threatened. So, um, I, I think I said something like, look, my anger is here for a reason. You got to let me feel it. You know, I'm trying to right a wrong right now. I'm still in the system. I have to go to court. Like, And, I, and I'm not paying you for this 30-minute session. Right. And I was going to say, you just doubled my anger. <laughs> oh, and it did. Yeah, yeah like anytime you, fear, anytime you emotion shame somebody, you just doubled it. Mm. You know? And you can hear it in my voice. I'm, I'm more angry at this guy mm. for trying to tell me it's not okay to be angry than my friend that put the bombs at the house, right? Like that's kind of, it then got transferred to him. That's another conversation. But the point is, it's like, like we're in a society right now where like you hear about these mass shootings or just somebody, you know, daughter getting murdered and 24 hours later, the family forgives the murderer. 
Like, come on. And we think, oh, that's so nice. That's BS. That's emotional that's repression. Totally you know? I, uh, there's a I, reason revenge movies rank so highly. <laughs> right. Because it's, in essence, revenge is a very, like that, the idea of, of carrying through on retribution is a human quality that we ultimately all respect. And the reason we falsely disrespect it is because we have this imaginary utopian idea of where how humans should live. Everybody's in peace and love and all this other garbage. When if that is the way that we live and we don't have the other side, there is no balance there. Like that, that is not a good system. There are, uh, there has to be a central point where everything is indifferent uh, where a person is indifferent, and then based on environmental and circumstantial uh, experiences, you feel one emotion and then the next. And I just I think that the whole lack of consequences is a uh, let's see socially detrimental because when we when we impose I mean and in, in in and we've been doing this now for in in the gym we impose consequences for. Uh, it, <laughs> Unful when we witness unfulfilled potential, let's say, mm. put it that way, like you can do this, you choose not to do it at that level, and therefore allow me to give you this gift. Well, where does the and, potential come from? I say it's from our anger, our oh, sadness, but, our demons, potentially our rats, Poten Mark. <laughs> <laughs> right? Our demons? Dare, dare, how dare you out me? Our, our potential doesn't come from our light. Our potential comes... The the untapped into potential comes from our darkness. Whoa, 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 whoa. Who, who are you and what are you Darth doing Ulmer. And, uh, Darth Ulmer. Darth <laughs> Ulmer. No. We're going... She yeah. just showed up with a lightsaber and exactly. fucked shit up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that question, that line of questioning of, of, of where our potential comes from because... If it is innate, then it's just a soul battle. If it's not, if it's ex if it's external, and we need to find like it has to be somewhat external. It has to be somewhat um, a balance. But the fight is a balance between us and nature, and nature and us, and us and other humans. Like that, because if it's not, if it's just one thing, if it was just an emotional battle. Um, it would have worked itself out because we have potent. We have people who have hit potential without understanding anything that you're talking about that's true right um you can accomplish a lot of what, with the radical denial of your emotions there's no question i mean i i repressed my fear to an extreme and i became the best in the world for 12 years and the question is could i have been as good as i was um without repressing fear and what i've realized is absolutely yes i would have been better i would have had less injuries and i wouldn't have ever burnt out either and um you know i i disagree ah okay yeah uh, and i say this this why why be, be, because because you um you were unable uh with your level of maturity yes and intelligence at that time i agree that you not so right. so you could uh, at the time that your physical skills were at their peak, your intellectual, your emotional and, and uh, let's just say psychological skills were not yet developed. So yes, if you could have sort of stopped time, 
um, and 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 held on to that you know your your uh, your physical peak and the desire to express it until your emotional ability caught up, then yes, you could have. Um, thoroughly expressed fear and achieved more or less the same result. But because those two things were not coincident, um, you know, we're like, I, it, it couldn't have happened. That's why I disagree. And I let me say something about that because I just had a realization. Like I said that my fantasy is that emotional intelligence is taught in school. If emotional intelligence is taught in school, two possible futures for me. I would have had a healthier relationship with my fear during my ski career or I wouldn't have had the motivation to become yes. a professional athlete in the first place because I didn't have all those demons because they would have been eradicated by that education. Yes, but potentially. Potentially. I, mean, I don't know. It, yeah, this, but why not a, offer the opportunity to This is a to, great to social that. experiment that I think that should be conducted. You make the argument in the book for that exact thing, and I would disagree, albeit for different reasons than Mark, is that the illusion that we could have made different choices or that there could have been yeah. something different is just an illusion. And if we process that we could have fundamentally done anything different, that turns into a delusion, right? So essentially we're talking about the we have a will and we can will ourselves to move, but we can't will ourselves to will differently. This is not, you, you cannot, being a Zen practitioner, perhaps you could illuminate on this, but we can't even control what we want to understand as in while you were speaking i can't say that i don't want to understand you right now and your words become gibberish i it is without my control i have to listen to your words and i under i translate them i know english and i can't help but think and ponder on them therefore the the environment we don't have control over albeit what environment we put ourselves into you had no other options to not only deal with how you dealt with fear but the circumstances in which you developed that. So yeah, maybe you could have done some different things in this illusionary thing where you're like, oh man, if I knew what I knew now, now it would be different. But I guarantee it probably would have been different in probably a bad way. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why we keep saying, oh, I wouldn't change a thing. You know, these lessons, these hard You mean I couldn't change a thing. I couldn't change a thing. (laughs) Not then, not now. Even if I could, I wouldn't, because then I wouldn't have gotten to this point where I'm sitting talking to you guys right Mm now. And, you know. You could could have just made a U-turn in the parking lot. I could have. I almost did. No, I didn't. There's no place I'd rather be. But it comes back, though, to the question, of course, I'm still trying to frame this is what is emotional intelligence? Like, what does that mean? And let me tell you a story that I don't think I've ever told you this, Mark. And um, So uh, I was going is through... Is this going to be dangerous for my it, self-esteem? It, it, it's, it's like I'm, I build these... This, my husband and I, we build these art cars for Burning Man, yes. and they're pretty awesome. And it all starts with this rat I built... I bought a golf cart and I built a 22 foot long rat, six feet high with a saddle on the roof and a bit in its mouth and you ride it like a horse. Well, why do you think I built that rat, Mark? I, I, I have no idea, actually. I'm, I'm completely, consider me a babe in the woods. All right. So um, feeding your rats, you know, feeding your insecurities, feeding your demons, like as extreme athletes like how me. else are they gonna grow right <laughs> so we, we go out there and we risk our lives and and however 
you know, I, I uh, did the first female ski descent of the Grand Teton, and it was really dangerous, and we were so lucky to be alive. shit conditions, too. Right. But and your ambition outweighed your right, ability to ability, make a good decision. And I did it anyway. Maybe and you should you have know fostered what? your intellect a little bit more. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> Carried yes, that basket That would have there. been really good advice. Where were you back then? <laughs> so I came back from that deliciously terrifying experience, and I could live with myself for about three weeks. And I didn't have to go out and have any kind of fearful that, experience. That rat for was three stuffed. Weeks. He's just like rubbing its belly, rolling around yeah. its back, going, oh, ha, 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 I've just had this awesome meal." Right before it started gnawing at me again, and then mm. I had to go out and do something else. So, but what what happened? This is the story I want to tell you about the rat. Is mm. um, I was in love with this man. We were engaged to be married, and you know everything was great. And then he cheated on me, and we broke up. And I felt such despair. I was just crushed by that breakup. And uh, because I already had a Zen practice, I really enjoyed my despair. And so my, my insecurity and my fear and my anger and my despair um, became these motivation points for Put me to create this to rat, right? And I didn't create the rat like, oh, the guy's a rat for cheating. Man. That's just super surface shit. Like for me, I wanted to go to Burning Man. And, and the thing is the guy like practically ran Burning Man. He was number four in charge. And the girl that he cheated on me with was number three in charge at Burning Man. So now I'm going to Burning Man for the first time in my life. And they're like the king and queen Wait, of like Burning Man. political hierarchy yeah, at Burning yeah. Man. <laughs> anyway. I thought that was like, yeah. I thought the whole thing was like decentralized, you know, like it is, but these, hedonism. Yeah, they pretty much ran the event. Okay. So I'm going there and I'm going there by myself. And I'm like, I'm going to see them. And uh, so I, I built this rat to celebrate my insecurities, my anger, my rage, my despair. And I was just going to ride it like a horse. I was going to find really cute guys to drive me around. And I was going to stand up there half naked. You saw the photo. Oh, yeah. Right? So here I am just absolutely in, in like the worst state of despair of my life. And that week at Burning Man, just celebrating my despair and my frustration, my fear and anger was the best week of my life. And I cried when I felt like crying. And I yelled when I felt like yelling. So emotional intelligence. So why do... <laughs> uh, I mean, this makes, takes me. Let me try and circle back to the like, how did this whole relationship with fear, these norms develop um, because that, that require that, oh, wait, there's this place I can go where I can be completely free with all of my baskets? And then come back after a while and, and you know, yeah, there's some emotional baggage. There's, there's yet another basket. I come back with my fifth basket, um, which is actually baggage um, fr from that event. But, like, w why did we get, yes, okay, somebody, like, screaming out in joy in the shopping mall, someone's going to think they're a terrorist of some kind. That's not emotional like, intelligence. It, well, it would, it would be emotionally silly to do, you know, to, to, to do that. Based emotional on the, absurdity. <laughs> based yeah. on the fact of, of, of you know, how uh, people would react, but but just the fact that oh, there's this place in the desert, and once a year I can go there and and cry when I want to cry, and scream when I want to scream, and celebrate what I want to celebrate. Um, it, that is that is apart from all of this other stuff. I'm not saying like bring Burning Man to you know Missouri. Oh, it's a or, utopian uh, community. Uh, for some people, for, yeah. For some, for, and, for some people, it's yeah. not. You can't. You no, can't but, do but, that. But, but in why the does real it have world? to no. exist? You know, the, the reason that exists is because of um, 
everything that we are talking about here mm -hmm. is that that it is emotional repression results in i mean a, a pressure cooker has a relief valve so and, Let's look at uh, anger. And, I, and I'm not saying like let's try let's like try and make society a better place or or whatever, but just let's acknowledge that this exists. But, that like if like you didn't necessarily feel at, you know at that time free to cry when you wanted, scream when you wanted, shout for joy when you wanted. No way. Um, and and, and, and without being in that place where you know social norms have. Uh, become a bit more flexible so, so in, this is this is a good point and you might find this kind of argumentative but i see where mark's going with this is that you you found a place where it's acceptable to do unacceptable things like you said oh somebody screaming for joy in a mall is not emotional intelligent well is there emotional intelligence in riding a rat around expressing emotion just because the environment changes like that's unacceptable in one, but socially and culturally, you just found a place that fostered what you needed to get out. And basically what we're saying is that there's a, just a fine line between, um, you know, pathology and something else. Like we're just all riding this fine line. And in some, some are acceptable, some are intelligences and others are fucking insanity. So obviously Burning Man is a special situation. Insanity. Yeah. Um, actually, my the reason why I love Burning Man so much is because we spend so much of our lives trying to appear sane, and it's not our nature. Our mm -hmm. nature is to be insane. And so for one week a year, I go for two, actually. I can go to Burning Man, and I can just drop that facade and just be insane. It's like food to a starving person. I will. People ask me every year, Do you go, are you going to Burning Man this year? I'm like, of course I'm going to Burning Man this year. I'll never not go to Burning Man for that exact reason. So then, but emotional intelligence, like can you do that? If that's a form of emotional intelligence, here's what the deal is with that. It's like you got to know your, your environment. Mm -hmm. You know, I know emotionally intelligence, you know, I can express my emotions freely in any way I want at Burning Man, but I also have the intelligence but to I not express them that way in the grocery store. But because I have agreed to this social contract with the people around me, apart from Burning Man, I am required to suppress emotions. No. Or simply not express them. To, like, you can feel them without expressing them. Yes, I get that differentiation. But, but, the, but the fact is like by you, you creating the, I mean, this, the, the, the social contract almost... Like I'm, if I shout for, like I said, if I shout for joy in the mall, like jumping up and down, I mean, yeah, it, it as long as it's not, if, on any other day than Black Friday is what I mean. Um, <laughs> Cause when I get that deal on that 46 incher, man, I'm someone's gonna, getting but, fucking knuckles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but, but the, 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 it's like the, 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 the sort of social agreement that we all have with each other to like tone down our expression mm -hmm of or focus it steer it and you know and and you over there feel free hypothetical person to um aim what you're feeling away from me right now because well we're, um, we're, we're basically talking about a form of escapism like I, and i'm not trying to demean your experience in at burning man or whatever but this is the whole argument behind something like you know you put forth uh, i don't know if you have you watched westworld no okay it is a great 
it's a great show to highlight how little we understand about what we need to get out about our human nature. And this comes up about that. I don't know if you're aware that there's a, there's a department at MIT that is only concerned with the meta ethics involved in robotics. Now that sounds like a really fucking stupid thing and that it doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. But what they're trying to decide is whether it is ethical or not to create something like a childlike sex robot. Oh, we can do that? It's already been done. Oh, that's, of course we should do that. Right. So, well, and most people say like ethically, ethically, that sounds like a fucking paradox, like a trap. Like, yeah, we should have this thing. Or why shouldn't we have this thing? Essentially, we're saying that robots don't feel these things. Therefore, we can take out all of these repressed emotions wait uh, i need a robot i already i already have a i already have a phone don't i already have my sex robot I, this is essentially what this what is essentially like, well, this is essentially what it sounds like burning man is and 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 you know i'm not one to argue from the point of privilege but i imagine if we go there the demographic is fairly certainly upper middle class and very white and you go, okay, so you have this outlet, you have an escape, you have a way to get out this thing that you know is very, very helpful. How does that apply to somebody who doesn't have that or isn't invited to that culture or isn't welcomed or, you know, there, there is no outcome. And essentially you're saying like, you have an access to something that not a lot of people do and it's very helpful. Is that escapism? Well, I, I, it could be, yeah, sure. And, you know, it's not fair for the conversation to bring in Burning Man because that is a very unusual uh, city where anything goes. And, you know, I, I keep coming back to emotional intelligence because there's one key element that is the missing link and when it comes to emotions and emotional intelligence is that at this point what we perceive to be anger, fear, sadness, and all that is exaggerated, irrational, crazy versions of these emotions, like holes getting punched in the wall, people getting thrown out of windows, like shaking in terror, irrational fears, Cutting OCD, boards getting broken. Cutting boards the... getting broken, right? <laughs> Sobbing uncontrollably, say... <laughs> depression. Like this is what we see as being emotions. But mm. what these these things are these these like take irrational fear for example if fear is locked in the basement like that child it's down there you know in the dark making it's bombs making bombs and it's going to do whatever it can to get your attention it'll be irrational it'll be crazy it'll come out as a panic attack it'll come out also redirected in completely different ways as anger like for example if the kid has a really bad home life and he, he feels terrified you know but that feels powerless, but anger feels powerful. So he'll just walk around pissed off all the time. It's like, what we know is emotions right now are just the repressed, locked in the basement versions coming out in crazy, hysterical, irrational ways. And so that's the emotions that we want nothing to do with it. You know, they're not allowed to come out in public, you know, if, if unless we hand, unless we develop the skills to actually handle them and sort of bleed them off in a way that um, prevents them from getting up to sort of like exploding pressure cooker status. Right. That's if you're erupting in anger, that's not you expressing your emotions. That's not emotional intelligence. That's a clear sign that you've re been repressing anger, certainly fear as well. And it's just kind of exploded now into your system all at once. Now, emotional intelligence to me is our but once the cutting board's broken, 
you can't right. write down. But it, you're, you're in the privacy of your own home. You know, like nobody a, got he, hurt. He, he had like a miniature Burning Man moment in the kitchen. I yeah. love it. Yeah, I turned you had the cutting mi- board right. into a rat. Right. And I wrote exactly. it. <laughs> that works, you know? Yeah. But if you threw the cutting board at somebody's head, you know, that's definitely not emotional intelligence. And, you know, the utopian ideal of emotional intelligence at Burning Man is not what we're going for in the rest of the world. What we're going for is if you have an honest, and this is my definition of emotional intelligence, if you have an honest, considerate relationship with your emotions, and then you have them help you come alive. So... Can I not repress my emotions? Can I feel them? Have, can I have them help me come alive? Can fear just kind of take me into heightened states of awareness and energize me and excitement? You know, can sadness open my heart to compassion and consideration of human suffering? Can anger right a wrong and make sure that I bring my A game, you know, when this stalker, when I have to go and face my stalker in trial and, and you know, be certain and, and confident? Like, that's emotional intelligence, not yelling at people or, or being terrified. And if we learn how to stop the repressive attitude towards our emotions, you know, all the problems associated with them start to dissolve. And if we learn to how to have an honest, healthy relationship with our emotions, then they only come out in kind of their wise, mature, lovely way. Like I said, when I felt that, that year of despair, I mean, I have never felt more alive in my life. And when I came home from Burning Man, did I cry when I felt like crying and yell when I felt? No, of course not. Because you allowed yourself to experience that despair. Yes. Was there potentially a... It's an emotional rumspringer. I was was just going (laughs) to... I was going to say, was there potentially a... Someone who had a fairly healthy relationship with fear and despair um, that you encountered in your life earlier that suggested that potentially just allowing that despair to wash over you uh, was a good thing? No, I, I had to learn this. And I learned it the hard way. I almost died being a professional athlete. And here's here's the hard part. A million times I almost died. Totally. And, and here's where it's going to be very hard to grasp because I don't want to uh, demean the utility of your book because I think it's absolutely like wonderful to read. But the fact that you just express the exact thing that I find hard about relaying information to other people is that it is almost useless unless you go do it and experience it yourself. Right. And I show people what to do. I mean, and that's like, seem to be a... So they can learn this too? Part of like the the Ski to Live program was using, because I was going to riff on your, um, what you were just going on with there about, you know, using my physical intelligence to um, drive the... To, to drive this vessel that can carry uh, the rest of me into these ex- into these experiences, and I can and if I develop my physical vessel, you know, to 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 um, the extent that I can go so far or for so long that all of my conscious efforts to repress emotion are um, broken down by exhaustion, and I am forced compelled to. Uh, experience those those emotions in uh, in a way for which I have no resistance because I have used my physical intelligence to break down um, to to exhaust to you know to to spend all of my resistance in one way that allows me to have a a, a very deep and um, uh, uh, rich experience with those emotions. 
but I had to use the physical means in order to break down all of the um, s structures that I use in order to repress and guide um, what I see as like runaway uh, emotion. And it, it could be that I was naturally gifted with emotional intelligence anyway, and I just had to nurture that and kind of develop it. And I, my way of doing it is through physical expression. You know, emotions are feelings felt in the body. If you're willing to feel them, then you kind of just go into your body. Um, like I was doing some good things with emotions back during my ski career. It was totally under my radar. I didn't know what was going on. But also during that time, I used to cry a lot. And when I would cry, there was a, an element of resistance to it. And that made me cry harder and longer. And it, it's like I, I was sad about something, but then I wished it weren't so. You know, and I had this resistance to it. And that's why I was probably crying a lot. And if you have an emotion like fear or anger or sadness and you wish it weren't so, well, you then it goes into the basement. And the second your guard is dropped when you're exhausted, like you're saying, or when you're trying to sleep at night or when something really scares you, you just come freaking unglued, right? And that's what that is. That's a sign of repressed emotions. And, uh, and all I was describing is a means to... Um allow that emotion out of the basement like to to okay i use these physical means in order to sort of break down the walls that are or you know open the base break down the basement door so all that shit can get out the more that i do that the more i get used to experiencing those emotions and realize this is not harmful in the least right it's fine and therefore so that's the means that i use i think it's the means that michael uses the reason we, that we have been involved in gyms and training people because we see i mean i see the the means itself as irrelevant but that's the but the physical is the one that we use in order to teach people that emotional intelligence and to um and even to to give them access to an intellectual intelligence that maybe they didn't have access to before. And that's brilliant. You know, you take people into their body, you break them down, you just, just devastate them and they're going to feel build, their emotions, yeah. whether they like it or not. And they're, yeah. and then they'll find that it's actually pretty freaking awesome to feel your emotions. Yeah. And there's and no, like and there's no negative outcome to yeah. it. It's just like, Oh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid to feel fear. Well, now you're doubly afraid of something <laughs> right. and then you're crying and, weeping on the floor and you're enjoying it i'm afraid to be afraid you know yeah i, I mean which was one of my questions like why are people afraid to be afraid <laughs> but, like what what's gonna what will happen if you allow that that fear to sort of encompass you in totality oh you might get paralyzed and not do something you might make a bad decision about something else I'm but actually, uh, but Maybe not. It's like I don't. I I rarely have seen. Well, yeah, that's actually not true. I see people make bad, and saw a lot of people make bad decisions in the mountains that were based on fear, and them not responding. Well, to based that on sensation appropriately. Based on fear or based on their resistance to fear. Uh, irrelevant at the time, and I could and I could second guess now, but. Um, but I won't. Perhaps or, I guess know, I, I, I might have to think about that a little when, bit, Kristen. When somebody walks away from a, a sketchy experience, um, it could be the avoidance of fear. Like, I don't want to feel fear. Like, the person that never takes any risks, they're a fear avoider. They blame fear for holding them back when really they should blame themselves because they're avoiding fear. Or... Wait, but fear is within them, so they're actually blaming themselves already. Right. 
Right. So, you know. (laughs) And then they get mad at themselves because they can't do the thing that they wanted to do because they had this thing that they couldn't control. And then, um, and and now. But they outsource the blame. And now I'm on a couch talking to somebody. They outsource the blame (laughs) to fear. Fear's holding me back. You know, that guy, that thing. That's what's holding me back. Yeah. I mean, and compartmentalizing emotion, you know, like putting it outside of self. I mean, what a ridiculous person. Right. Okay. <laughs> the, well, you know, I'm a voice dialogue facilitator. But, but going back to in the mountains, like one of two things is happening. Either that person is a fear avoider. And if it's one of your friends, probably not happening. Or, Possibly. Yeah. Or fear is like screaming, saying, what the fuck are you thinking? No, this is, this is a very right? serious situation. Yeah, this and... is very, you know, and it's fear, <laughs> intuition, instinct kind of all tied together. Yeah. Like... You know, if you're willing to listen to your fear, you have access to your intuition and instinct. Like it's time to back off. You know, so one of two things is happening. Ah, God damn it, we can't. Oh. Now we're here. Okay, then, then. <laughs> now we have to live with it. Now then, we can calm the fuck down. Well, no, <laughs> you, you have two choices in that moment to calm the fuck down, which takes a lot of effort and energy, you know, to, to you know, how many. Oh, I'm not saying repress. And meditation and tapping like, and all that shit, right? Or. I used to carry a ball gag in the mountains. It's. it's very useful in these situations. Well, that's a lot of extra weight. Oh, no, no. They, they're like, it's a wiffle ball. Okay. You know, it's like a plastic. It's got holes in it so all you right, can actually breathe. Right. Yeah. That's more anyway, acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> so um, consider Bambi. You know, I brought up Bambi before. Yeah. So animals have a really good relationship with their emotions. And uh, so Bambi's eating grass in a field. And all of a sudden, there's some rustling in the bushes. I pull up with my four by four. Yeah, and, and Mark pulls up with his four by four. And all of a sudden, the amygdala, you know, sends a, the amygdala is the manufacturing plant for fear. Sends a shot of discomfort to her body, and she perks right up. So you're out in the mountains, you perk right up, and all of a sudden, you're more sharp and focused. You can hear better. You can see better. You're scanning the bushes, right there. It's Mark with his four by four, and you fight or flight, right? You take off running, and then you run faster than you ever have in your life. You know, because Bambi plus fear equals super athlete Bambi. So that fear actually is the thing that you can then tap into to keep you alive and be sharp and focused and keep you awake, maybe even for days on on end. Like fear is your absolute asset and ally out there. And uh, if you're repressing fear in order to climb, you don't have access as much. Yeah, I, I think mm. I, I, I think that uh, we have to go back to that the, the highest level athletes. They don't repress it. They, you know, feel it, move right. on. But they don't know they do that. So there's probably a paradox going on with all extreme athletes. They love it. They hate it. They repress it. They, you know, they chase it like a dog chases a ball. Um, it's, uh, and, and they don't realize that even if they say or feel, say that they're fearless or feel like they're fearless, like me, underneath the surface, like their whole career is about fear. It's like the climbing doesn't even matter. The skiing doesn't even matter. It's this fear and this this place that it takes me. Like that's what people are chasing to feel alive. We will need, we have to um, address that because I don't, I, I, I would, I, I'd have to disagree with the sort of fear junkie um, motivation as, as being primary. Well, I think that it's part of it. And it's everything for some people. I mean, there's 7.5 billion different people on the planet. And we have 7.5 di- billion different relationships with fear. But there is some element, I would say, in all extreme athletes that are risking their lives where they enjoy feeling fear. And they, 
they have some sort of intimacy with it that maybe they're not aware of. Yeah, yes, I I, to, I I agree with that, but I don't I I wouldn't say that the to, the the. To, to experience fear is the primary motivation for doing the activity. Would you say that to experience excitement I was about to say, is the primary, you know, reason? Because you could go just for a nature walk. And there's no excitement in that. Oh, but you don't get to post that on Instagram as Right. It doesn't get as many likes. And remember, neurochemically, fear and excitement are the same No, no, thing. I, get, I, I get it. I'm just, I, I, I think... I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give it, uh, I'm going to give it a couple of days and we're going to have to, we're going to have to talk about this again. Mm. So I guess the question is, um, can you have excitement without fear? And, uh, I mean, it's arguable, you know, it may take me a while to come up with an example, but re- write that down and we'll talk about it another time. Darth Ulmer, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I, I think everybody should um, go read your book. Not that we have like a huge audience, but those that are still fucking listening, <laughs> they should go find The Art of Fear and digest and use the stuff that's very useful. And that's that's what I, uh, it has been very useful. You brought up a lot of things that I think are not thought about intellectually. They're not, uh, it's very um, counterintuitive to how you would imagine or how our society is labeled fear. And I think people would ultimately benefit from that conversation. And I appreciate the time that you came here and chatted with us about your premise. It's been really fun. And we could go on, but it has been like two hours or something. Well, they're going to start dropping weights pretty soon. Yeah. Right. Okay. (laughs) And that makes me scared. Let me, let me, (laughs) I'm very terrified. I'm terrified the sound quality is going to be, um, so it's a motivator to shut her down. Um, you know, I wrote my book to explain why we have so many problems in our society mm. that I've outlined. And, and that's really what I wrote this for. I, I know my personal story is interesting in there. Mm. and um, But really, I'm just here to help kind of, we're, we're a little off course with our emotions. And the more we spend time just in our intellect and trying to understand them scientifically, all that, we're getting further and further away from our ability to feel them. And so I'm just hoping this book will kind of gently correct that so that we don't have to all take drugs at some point just to get through our day. Nice. Nice. But we can, right? Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's a place in Nevada for that. Oh, yeah. But it only happens like a couple times a year. And then, and then back once you're back in normal society, no please drugs. behave. Only, only the state-recognized drugs Well, are... so there's the drugs that get rid of the fear, and then there are the drugs that um, help you have a... Oh. A healthy or like kind of conversation with fear. That's why PTSD is being treated with MDMA so mm-hmm. that you can actually finally have a conversation with your fear and being willing to feel your fear. That's what that drug brokers. So and and feel like your crotch is just like oh yeah dipped in a bowl of warm yogurt right for hours. <laughs> so some drugs good for your relationship with fear. Other drugs not so much. Yeah, exactly. On that note, thank you, Kristen. Thank you. <laughs>